0: This is Audible. Audible Studios presents Air of Fire, a Throne of Glass novel. Written by Sarah J. Mass. Narrated by Elizabeth Evans. Part 1. Air of Ash. Chapter 1. Gods, it was boiling in this useless excuse for a kingdom. Or maybe it felt that way because Selena Sardathian had been lounging on the lip of the terracotta roof since mid-morning, an arm flung over her eyes, slowly baking in the sun like the loaves of flatbread the city's poorest citizens left on their windowsills, because they couldn't afford brick ovens. And gods, she was sick of flatbread. Tegya, they called it. Sick of the crunchy, oniony taste of it that even mouthfuls of water couldn't wash away. If she never ate another bite of Tegya again, it would be too soon. Mostly because it was all she'd been able to afford when she landed in Wendland two weeks ago, and made her way to the capital city, Verez, just as she'd been ordered by his grand imperial majesty and master of the earth, the King of Otterland, She'd resorted to swiping Tegya and wine off vendors' carts since her money ran out, not long after, she'd taken one look at the heavily fortified limestone castle, at the elite guards, at the cobalt banners flapping so proudly in the dry, hot wind, and decided not to kill her assigned targets. So it had been stolen tegya and wine. The sour red wine from the vineyards lining the rolling hills around the walled capital, a taste she'd initially spat out but now very, very much enjoyed especially since the day when she decided that she didn't particularly care about anything at all. She reached for the terracotta tiles sloping behind her, groping for the clay jug of wine she'd hauled onto the roof that morning. Patting, feeling for it, and then, she swore. Where in hell was the wine? The world tilted and went blindingly bright as she hoisted herself onto her elbows, Birds circled above, keeping well away from the white-tailed hawk that had been perched atop a nearby chimney all morning, waiting to snatch up its next meal. Below, the market street was a brilliant loom of color and sound, full of braying donkeys, merchants waving their wares, clothes both foreign and familiar, and the clacking of wheels against pale cobblestones. But where in hell was the- Ah- There, tucked beneath one of the heavy red tiles to keep cool, just where she'd stashed it hours before, when she'd climbed onto the roof of the massive indoor market to survey the perimeter of the castle walls two blocks away, or whatever she'd thought sounded official and useful before she'd realized that she'd rather sprawl in the shadows, shadows that had long since been burned away by that relentless Wendland sun. Selena swigged from the jug of wine, or tried to. It was empty, which she supposed was a blessing, because gods her head was spinning. She needed water and more tegia. And perhaps something for the gloriously painful split lip and scraped cheekbone she'd earned last night in one of the city's Tabernas. Groaning, Selena rolled onto her belly and surveyed the street forty feet below. She knew the guards patrolling it by now, had marked their faces and weapons, just as she had with the guards atop the high castle walls. She'd memorized their rotations, and how they opened the three massive gates that led into the castle. It seemed that the Ash Rivers and their ancestors took safety very, very seriously. It had been ten days since she'd arrived in Verez itself, after hauling ass from the coast not because she was particularly eager to kill her targets, but because the city was so damn large that it seemed her best chance of dodging the immigration officials, whom she'd given the slip instead of registering with their oh-so-benevolent work program. Hurrying to the capital had also provided welcome activity after weeks at sea, where she hadn't really felt like doing anything other than lying on the narrow bed in her cramped cabin, or sharpening her weapons with a near-religious zeal. You're nothing but a coward, Nehemia had said to her. Every slice of the wedding stone had echoed it. Coward, coward, coward. The word had trailed her each league across the ocean. She had made a vow, a vow to free Eelway. So in between moments of despair and rage and grief, in between thoughts of chaos and the word keys and all she'd left behind and lost, Selena had decided on one plan to follow when she reached these shores. One plan, however insane and unlikely, to free the enslaved kingdom. Find and obliterate the word keys the King of Otterland had used to build his terrible empire. She'd gladly destroy herself to carry it out. Just her. Just him. Just as it should be. No loss of life beyond their own. No soul stained but hers. It would take a monster to destroy a monster. If she had to be here thanks to Kaol's misplaced good intentions, then at least she'd receive the answers she needed. There was one person in Aurelia who had been present when the word keys were wielded by a conquering demon race, that had warped them into three tools of such mighty power that they'd been hidden for thousands of years and nearly wiped from memory queen mave of the fae mave knew everything as was expected when you were older than dirt so the first step of her stupid foolish plan had been simple seek out mave get answers about how to destroy the word keys and then return to otterland It was the least she could do for Nehemia, for a lot of other people. There was nothing left in her, not really. Only ash and an abyss, and the unbreakable vow she'd carved into her flesh to the friend who had seen her for what she truly was. When they had docked at the largest port city in Wendland, she couldn't help but admire the caution the ship took while coming to shore, waiting until a moonless night, then stuffing Selena and the other refugee women from Otterlyn in the galley, while navigating the secret channels through the barrier reef. It was understandable. The reef was the main defense keeping Otterlyn's legions from these shores. It was also part of her mission here as the king's champion. That was the other task lingering in the back of her mind— to find a way to keep the king from executing Kaol or Nehemia's family. He'd promised to do it, should she fail in her mission to retrieve Wendland's naval defense plans and assassinate its king and prince at their annual Midsummer Ball. But she'd shoved all those thoughts aside when they'd docked, and the refugee women had been herded ashore for processing by the port's officials. Many of the women were scarred inside and out, their eyes gleaming with echoes of whatever horrors had befallen them in Otterland. So even after she'd vanished from the ship during the chaos of docking, she'd lingered on a nearby rooftop while the women were escorted into a building to find homes and employment. Yet Wendlin's officials could later bring them to a quiet part of the city and do whatever they wanted. Sell them, hurt them. They were refugees unwanted and without any rights without any voice but she hadn't lingered merely from paranoia no nehemia would have remained to ensure they were safe realizing that selena had wound up on the road to the capital as soon as she was certain the women were all right learning how to infiltrate the castle was merely something to occupy her time while she decided how to execute the first steps of her plan while she tried to stop thinking about Nehemia. It had all been fine, fine and easy. Hiding in the little woods and barns along the way, she passed like a shadow through the countryside. Wendlin, a land of myths and monsters, of legends and nightmares made flesh. The kingdom itself was a spread of warm, rocky sand and thick forest, growing ever greener as hills rolled inland and sharpened into towering peaks. The coast and the land around the capital were dry, as if the sun had baked all but the hardiest vegetation. Vastly different from the soggy, frozen empire she'd left behind. A land of plenty, of opportunity, where men didn't just take what they wanted, where no doors were locked and people smiled at you in the streets. But she didn't particularly care if someone did or didn't smile at her. No, as the days wore on, she found it suddenly very difficult to bring herself to care about anything at all. Whatever determination, whatever rage, whatever anything she'd felt upon leaving Otterlin, had ebbed away, devoured by the nothingness that now gnawed at her. It was four days before Selena spotted the massive capital city built across the foothills. Vérez, the city where her mother had been born, the vibrant heart of the kingdom. While Vérez was cleaner than Rifthold and had plenty of wealth spread between the upper and lower classes, it was a capital city all the same, with slums and back alleys, whores and gamblers, and it hadn't taken too long to find its underbelly. On the street below, three of the market guards paused to chat, and Selena rested her chin on her hands. Like every guard in this kingdom, each was clad in light armor and bore a good number of weapons. Rumor claimed the Wendlinite soldiers were trained by the Fae to be ruthless and cunning and swift. And she didn't want to know if that was true, for about a dozen different reasons, They certainly seemed a good deal more observant than the average Rifthold sentry, even if they hadn't yet noticed the assassin in their midst. But these days, Selena knew the only threat she posed was to herself. Even baking in the sun each day, even washing up whenever she could in one of the city's many fountain squares, she could still feel Archer Finn's blood soaking her skin into her hair. Even with the constant noise and rhythm of Verez, she could still hear Archer's groan as she gutted him in that tunnel beneath the castle. And even with the wine and heat, she could still see Kaol, horror contorting his face at what he'd learned about her fey heritage, and the monstrous power that could easily destroy her, about how hollow and dark she was inside. She often wondered whether he'd figure out the riddle she'd told him on the docks of Rifthold, and if he had discovered the truth. Selena never let herself get that far. Now wasn't the time for thinking about Kaol, or the truth, or any of the things that had left her soul so limp and weary. Selena tenderly prodded her split lip and frowned at the market guards, the movement making her mouth hurt even more. She'd deserved that particular blow, in the brawl she'd provoked in last night's Taberna. She'd kicked a man's balls into his throat, and when he'd caught his breath, he'd been enraged, to say the least. Lowering her hand from her mouth, she observed the guards for a few moments. They didn't take bribes from the merchants, or bully, or threaten with fines like the guards and officials in Rifthold, Every official and soldier she'd seen so far had been similarly good. The same way Gallen Ash River, Crown Prince of Wendlin, was good. Dredging up some semblance of annoyance, Selena stuck out her tongue. At the guards, at the market, at the hawk on the nearby chimney, at the castle and the prince who lived inside it. She wished that she had not run out of wine so early in the day. It had been a week since she'd figured out how to infiltrate the castle, three days after arriving in Vérez itself. A week since that horrible day when all her plans crumbled around her. A cooling breeze pushed past, bringing with it the spices from the vendors lining the nearby street. Nutmeg, thyme, cumin, lemon verbena. She inhaled deeply, letting the scents clear her sun-and-wine-addled head. The pealing of bells floated down from one of the neighboring mountain towns, and in some square of the city, a minstrel band struck up a merry midday tune. Nehemia would have loved this place. That fast, the world slipped, swallowed up by the abyss that now lived within her. Nehemia would never see Wendland, Never wander through the spice market or hear the mountain bells. A dead weight pressed on Selena's chest. It had seemed like such a perfect plan when she'd arrived in Varese. In the hours she'd spent figuring out the royal castle's defenses, she'd debated how she'd find Maeve to learn about the keys. It had all been going smoothly, flawlessly, until... Until that god's damned day when she'd noted how the guards left a hole in their defense in the southern wall every afternoon at two o'clock, and grasped how the gate mechanism operated. Until Gallen Ash River had come riding out through those gates, in full view of where she'd been perched on the roof of a nobleman's house. It hadn't been the sight of him, with his olive skin and dark hair, that had stopped her dead. It hadn't been the fact that, even from a distance, she could see his turquoise eyes. Her eyes. The reason she usually wore a hood in the streets. No. It had been the way people cheered. Cheered for him, their prince. Adored him, with his dashing smile and his light armor gleaming in the endless sun. As he and the soldiers behind him rode toward the north coast to continue blockade running blockade running the prince her target was a god's damned blockade runner against otterlin and his people loved him for it she trailed the prince and his men through the city leaping from rooftop to rooftop and all it would have taken was one arrow through those turquoise eyes and he would have been dead but she followed him all the way to the city walls the cheers growing louder People tossing flowers, everyone beaming with pride for their perfect, perfect prince. She'd reached the city gates just as they opened to let him through. And when Gallen Ashriver rode off into the sunset, off to war and glory and to fight for good and freedom, she lingered on that roof until he was a speck in the distance. Then she had walked into the nearest Taberna and gotten into the bloodiest, most brutal brawl she'd ever provoked, until the city guard was called in, and she vanished moments before everyone was tossed into the stocks. And then she had decided, as her nose bled down the front of her shirt and she spat blood onto the cobblestones, that she wasn't going to do anything. There was no point to her plans, Nehemia and Galen would have led the world to freedom, and Nehemia should have been breathing. Together, the prince and princess could have defeated the king of Otterlin. But Nehemia was dead. And Selena's vow, her stupid, pitiful vow, was worth as much as mud when there were beloved heirs like Galen who could do so much more. She'd been a fool to make that vow. Even Galen... Galen was barely making a dent against Otterlin, and he had an entire armada at his disposal. She was one person, one complete waste of life. If Nehemia hadn't been able to stop the king, then that plan, to find a way to contact Maeve, that plan was absolutely useless. Mercifully, she still hadn't seen one of the fae, not a single damn one, or the fairies or even a lick of magic. She'd done her best to avoid it. Even before she'd spotted Galen, she'd kept away from the market stalls that offered everything from healing to trinkets to potions, areas that were usually also full of street performers or mercenaries trading their gifts to earn a living. She'd learned which tabernas the magic wielders liked to frequent, and never went near them. Because sometimes... She felt a trickling, writhing thing awaken in her gut if she caught a crackle of its energy. It had been a week since she'd given up her plan and abandoned any attempt to care at all. And she suspected it'd be many weeks more before she decided she was truly sick of tegya, or brawling every night just to feel something, or guzzling sour wine as she lay on rooftops all day. But her throat was parched, and her stomach was grumbling. So Selena slowly peeled herself off the edge of the roof. Slowly, not because of those vigilant guards, but rather because her head was well and truly spinning. She didn't trust herself to care enough to prevent a tumble. She glared at the thin scar stretching across her palm as she shimmied down the drainpipe and into the alley off the market street, It was now nothing more than a reminder of the pathetic promise she'd made at Nehemia's half-frozen grave over a month ago, and of everything and everyone else she'd failed. Just like her amethyst ring, which she'd gambled away every night and won back before sunrise. Despite all that had happened, and Kaol's role in Nehemia's death, even after she'd destroyed what was between them, she hadn't been able to forfeit his ring. She'd lost it thrice now in card games, only to get it back, by whatever means necessary. A dagger poised to slip between the ribs usually did a good deal more convincing than actual words. Selena supposed it was a miracle she'd made it down to the alley, where the shadows momentarily blinded her. She braced a hand on the cool stone wall, letting her eyes adjust, willing her head to stop spinning. A mess. She was a god's damned mess. She wondered when she'd bother to stop being one. The tang and reek of the woman hit Selena before she saw her. Then wide, yellowed eyes were in her face, and a pair of withered, cracked lips parted to hiss, Slattern, don't let me catch you in front of my door again. Selena pulled back, blinking at the vagrant woman and at her door, which was just an alcove in the wall, crammed with rubbish and what had to be sacks of the woman's belongings. The woman herself was hunched, her hair unwashed and teeth a ruin of stumps. Selena blinked again, the woman's face coming into focus. Furious, half mad, and filthy. Selena held up her hands, backing away a step, then another, sorry the woman spat a wad of phlegm onto the cobblestones an inch from selena's dusty boots failing to muster the energy to be disgusted or furious selena would have walked away had she not glimpsed herself as she raised her dull gaze from the glob dirty clothes stained and dusty and torn Not to mention, she smelled atrocious. And this vagrant woman had mistaken her for... for a fellow vagrant competing for space on the streets. Well, wasn't that just wonderful? An all-time low, even for her. Perhaps it'd be funny one day if she bothered to remember it. She couldn't recall the last time she'd laughed. At least she could take some comfort in knowing that it couldn't get worse... But then, a deep male voice chuckled from the shadows behind her. Chapter Two The man, male, down the alley was Fay. After ten years, after all the executions and burnings, a Fay male was prowling toward her. Pure, solid Faye. There was no escaping him as he emerged from the shadows yards away. The vagrant in the alcove and the others along the alley fell so quiet, Selena could again hear those bells ringing in the distant mountains. Tall, broad-shouldered, every inch of him seemingly corded with muscle, he was a male blooded with power. He paused in a dusty shaft of sunlight, his silver hair gleaming as if his delicately pointed ears and slightly elongated canines weren't enough to scare the living shit out of everyone in that alley, including the now whimpering madwoman behind Selena, A wicked-looking tattoo was etched down the left side of his harsh face, the whorls of black ink stark against his sun-kissed skin. The markings could easily have been decorative, but she still remembered enough of the Fae language to recognize them as words, even in such an artistic rendering. Starting at his temple, the tattoo flowed over his jaw and down his neck, where it disappeared beneath the pale surcoat and cloak he wore. She had a feeling the markings continued down the rest of him, too, concealed along with at least half a dozen weapons. As she reached into her cloak for her own hidden dagger, she realized he might have been handsome, were it not for the promise of violence in his pine-green eyes. It would have been a mistake to call him young, just as it would have been a mistake to call him anything but a warrior, even without the sword strapped across his back and the vicious knives at his sides. He moved with lethal grace and surety, scanning the alley as if he were walking onto a killing field. The hilt of the dagger was warm in her hand, and Selena adjusted her stance, surprised to be feeling fear. And enough of it that it cleared the heavy fog that had been clouding her senses these past few weeks. The Fay warrior stalked down the alley, his knee-high leather boots silent on the cobblestones. Some of the loiterers shrank back, some bolted for the sunny street, to random doorways, anywhere to escape his challenging stare. Selena knew before his sharp eyes met hers that he was here for her and who had sent him. She reached for her eye amulet, startled to find it was no longer around her neck. She'd given it to Kaol, the only bit of protection she could grant him upon leaving. He'd probably thrown it away as soon as he figured out the truth. Then he could go back to the haven of being her enemy, Maybe he'd tell Dorian, too, and the pair of them would both be safe. Before she could give in to the instinct to scuttle back up the drainpipe and onto the roof, she considered the plan she'd abandoned. Had some god remembered she existed and decided to throw her a bone? She'd needed to see Maeve. Well, here was one of Mave's elite warriors, ready, waiting, and from the vicious temper emanating from him, not entirely happy about it. The alley remained as still as a graveyard while the Fay warrior surveyed her. His nostrils flared delicately, as if he were. He was getting a whiff of her scent. She took some small satisfaction in knowing she smelled horrific, but it wasn't that smell he was reading. No. It was the scent that marked her as her. The smell of her lineage and blood and what and who she was. And if he said her name in front of these people, then she knew that Gallen Ashriver would come running home. The guards would be on high alert. And that was not part of her plan at all. The bastard looked likely to do such a thing, just to prove who was in charge. So she summoned her energy as best she could and sauntered over to him, trying to remember what she might have done months ago, before the world had gone to hell. Well met, my friend, she purred. Well met indeed. She ignored the shocked faces around them, focusing solely on sizing him up. He stood with a stillness that only an immortal could achieve. She willed her heartbeat and breathing to calm He could probably hear them, could probably smell every emotion raging through her. There'd be no fooling him with bravado, not in a thousand years. He'd probably lived that long already. Perhaps there'd be no beating him either. She was Selena Sardothian, but he was a fey warrior and had likely been one for a great while. She stopped a few feet away gods he was huge what a lovely surprise she said loudly enough for everyone to hear when was the last time she'd sounded that pleasant she couldn't even remember the last time she'd spoken in full sentences i thought we were supposed to meet at the city walls he didn't bow thank the gods his harsh face didn't even shift Let him think what he wanted. She was sure she looked nothing like what he'd been told to expect. And he'd certainly laughed when that woman mistook her for a fellow vagrant. Let's go, was all he said. His deep, somewhat bored voice seeming to echo off the stones as he turned to leave the alley. She'd bet good money that the leather vambraces on his forearms concealed blades. She might have given him a rather obnoxious reply, just to feel him out a bit more. But people were still watching. He prowled along, not deigning to look at any of the gawkers. She couldn't tell if she was impressed or revolted. She followed the Fay warrior into the bright street and through the bustling city. He was heedless of the humans who paused their working and walking and milling about to stare. He certainly didn't wait for her to catch up as he strode up to a pair of ordinary mares tied by a trough in a nondescript square. If her memory served her correctly, the Fey usually possessed far finer horses. He had probably arrived in another form and purchased these here. All Fae possessed a secondary animal form. Selena was currently in hers, her mortal human body as animal as the birds wheeling above but what was his? He could have been a wolf, she thought, with that layered surcoat that flowed to mid-thigh like a pelt, his footfalls so silent, or a mountain cat with that predatory grace. He mounted the larger of the mares, leaving her to the piebald beast that looked more interested in seeking out a quick meal than trekking across the land. That made two of them, but they'd gone far enough without any explanation. She stuffed her satchel into a saddlebag, angling her hands so that her sleeves hid the narrow bands of scars on her wrists, reminders of where the manacles had been, where she had been. It was none of his business, none of Maeve's business either. The less they knew about her, the less they could use against her, I've known a few brooding warrior types in my day, but I think you might be the broodiest of them all. He whipped his head to her, and she drawled, Oh, hello. I think you know who I am, so I won't bother introducing myself. But before I'm carted off to God's nowhere, I'd like to know who you are. His lips thinned. He surveyed the square, where people were now watching, and everyone instantly found somewhere else to be. When they'd scattered, he said, You've gathered enough about me at this point to have learned what you need to know. He spoke the common tongue, and his accent was subtle, lovely if she was feeling generous enough to admit it. A soft, rolling purr. Fair enough, but what am I to call You? She gripped the saddle, but didn't mount it. Rowan. His tattoo seemed to soak up the sun, so dark it looked freshly inked. Well, Rowan. Oh, he did not like her tone one bit. His eyes narrowed slightly in warning, but she went on. Dare I ask where we're going? She had to be drunk, still drunk or descending to a new level of apathy if she was talking to him like this. But she couldn't stop, even as the gods or the word or the threads of fate readied to shove her back toward her original plan of action. I'm taking you where you've been summoned. As long as she got to see Maeve and ask her questions, she didn't particularly care how she got to Doranell, or whom she traveled with. Do what has to be done, Elena had told her. In her usual fashion, Elena had omitted to specify what had to be done once she arrived in Wendlin. At least this was better than eating flatbread and drinking wine and being mistaken for a vagrant. Perhaps she could be on a boat back to Otterland within three weeks, possessing the answers that would solve everything. It should have energized her but instead she found herself silently mounting her mare, out of words and the will to use them. Just the past few minutes of interaction had drained her completely. It was better that Rowan didn't seem inclined to speak as she followed him out of the city. The guards merely waved them through the walls, some even backing away. As they rode on, Rowan didn't ask why she was here or what she'd been doing for the past ten years while the world had gone to hell. He pulled his pale hood over his silver hair and moved ahead, though it was still easy enough to mark him as different, as a warrior and law unto himself. If he was truly as old as she suspected, she was likely little more than a speck of dust to him, a fizzle of life in the long burning fire of his immortality. He could probably kill her without a second thought and then move on to his next task, utterly untroubled by ending her existence. It didn't unnerve her as much as it should have. Chapter 3 For a month now, It had been the same dream. Every night, over and over, until Kaol could see it in his waking hours. Archer Finn groaning as Selena shoved her dagger up through his ribs and into his heart. She embraced the handsome courtesan like a lover, but when she gazed over Archer's shoulder, her eyes were dead. Hollow. The dream shifted, and Kaol could say nothing. Do nothing, as the golden brown hair darkened to black, and the agonized face wasn't archer's, but Dorian's. The crown prince jerked, and Selena held him tighter, twisting the dagger one final time before she let Dorian slump to the gray stones of the tunnel. Dorian's blood was already pooling, too fast. But Kaol still couldn't move, couldn't go to his friend or the woman he loved. The wounds on Dorian multiplied, and there was blood. So much blood. He knew these wounds. Though he'd never seen the body, he'd combed through the reports detailing what Selena had done to the rogue assassin Grave in that alley. The way she'd butchered him for killing Nehemia. Selena lowered her dagger each drop of blood from its gleaming blade sending ripples through the pool already around her. She tipped back her head, breathing in deep, breathing in the death before her, taking it into her soul, vengeance and ecstasy mingling at the slaughter of her enemy, her true enemy, the Haviljard Empire. The dream shifted again, and Kaol was pinned beneath her as she writhed above him, her head still thrown back, that same expression of ecstasy written across her blood-splattered face. Enemy. Lover. Queen. The memory of the dream splintered as Kaol blinked at Dorian, who was sitting beside him at their old table in the Great Hall and waiting for an answer to whatever he had said. Kaol gave an apologetic wince, the Crown Prince didn't return Kaol's half smile. Instead, Dorian quietly said, You were thinking about her. Kaol took a bite from his lamb stew, but tasted nothing. Dorian was too observant for his own good. And Kaol had no interest in talking about Selena. Not with Dorian, not with anyone. The truth he knew about her could jeopardize more lives than hers. I was thinking about my father. K.O. lied. When he returns to N.E.L. in a few weeks, I'm to go with him. It was the price for getting Selena to the safety of Wendlin. His father's support in exchange for his return to the Silver Lake to take up his title as the heir of N.E.L. And he'd been willing to make that sacrifice. He'd make any sacrifice to keep Selena and her secrets safe. Even now that he knew who, what she was. Even after she'd told him about the king and the word keys. If this was the price he had to pay, so be it. Dorian glanced toward the high table, where the king and Kaol's father dined. The crown prince should have been eating with them, but he'd chosen to sit with Kaol instead. It was the first time Dorian had done so in ages. The first time they had spoken since their tense conversation after the decision was made to send Selena to Wendlin. Dorian would understand if he knew the truth. But Dorian couldn't know who and what Selena was, or what the king was truly planning. The potential for disaster was too high. And Dorian's own secrets were deadly enough. I heard the rumors you were to go, Dorian said warily. I didn't realize they were true. Kaol nodded, trying to find something, anything to say to his friend. They still hadn't spoken of the other thing between them, the other bit of truth that had come out that night in the tunnels. Dorian had magic. Kaol didn't want to know anything about it. If the king decided to interrogate him... He hoped he'd hold out, if it ever came to that. The king, he knew, had far darker methods of extracting information than torture. So he hadn't asked, hadn't said one word. And neither had Dorian. He met Dorian's gaze. There was nothing kind in it. But Dorian said, I'm trying, Kaol. Trying because Kaol's not consulting him on the plan to get Selena out of Otterland had been a breach of trust, and one that shamed him, though Dorian could never know that either. I know. And despite what happened, I'm fairly certain we're not enemies. Dorian's mouth quirked to the side. You will always be my enemy. Selena had screamed those words at Kaol the night Nahemia had died, screamed it with ten years worth of conviction and hatred, a decade spent holding the world's greatest secret so deep within her that she had become another person entirely. Because Selena was Ash Ashriver Galathinius, heir to the throne and rightful queen of Terracine. It made her his mortal enemy, It made her Dorian's enemy. Kaol still didn't know what to do about it, or what it meant for them, for the life he'd imagined for them. The future he'd once dreamed of was irrevocably gone. He'd seen the deadness in her eyes that night in the tunnels, along with the wrath and exhaustion and sorrow. He'd seen her go over the edge when Nehemia died, and knew what she'd done to grave in retribution he didn't doubt for one heartbeat that she could snap again. There was such glittering darkness in her, an endless rift straight through her core. Nehemia's death had shattered her. What he had done, his role in that death, had shattered her too. He knew that. He just prayed that she could piece herself back together again. Because a broken, unpredictable assassin was one thing. But a queen, you look like you're going to be sick, Dorian said, bracing his forearms on the table. Tell me what's wrong. Kaol had been staring at nothing again for a heartbeat. The weight of everything pressed so heavily upon him that he opened up his mouth, But the boom of swords striking shields in salute echoed from the hallway, and Adian ash river. The king of Otterland's infamous general of the north and cousin to Aelan Galathinus stalked into the great hall. The hall fell silent, including his father and the king at the high table. Before Adian was halfway across the room, Kaol was positioned at the bottom of the dais. It wasn't that the young general was a threat, rather, it was the way Adian prowled toward the king's table. His shoulder length golden hair gleaming in the torchlight, as he smirked at them all. Handsome was a light way of describing what Adian was. Overwhelming was more like it. Towering and heavily muscled, Adian was every inch the warrior rumor claimed him to be. Even though his clothes were mostly for function, Kaol could tell that the leather of his light armor was a fine make and exquisitely detailed. A white wolf pelt was slung across his broad shoulders, and a round shield had been strapped to his back, along with an ancient-looking sword. But his face, and his eyes, holy gods. Kaol put a hand on his sword, schooling his features to remain neutral, disinterested, even as the wolf of the north came close enough to slaughter him. They were selena's eyes ash river eyes a stunning turquoise with a core of gold as bright as their hair their hair even the shade of it was the same they could have been twins if adian wasn't 24 and tanned from years in the snow bright mountains of terracin why had the king bothered to keep adian alive all those years ago why bother to forge him into one of his fiercest generals Adian was a prince of the Ash River royal line, and had been raised in the Galathinius household. And yet he served the king. Adian's grin remained as he stooped before the high table and sketched a bow shallow enough that Kaol was momentarily stunned. Majesty, the general said, those damning eyes alight. Kaol looked at the high table to see if the king... If anyone noticed the similarities that could doom not only Adian, but also Kaol and Dorian and everyone he cared about. His father just gave him a small satisfied smile. But the king was frowning. I expected you a month ago. Adian actually had the nerve to shrug. Apologies, the staghorns were slammed with a final winter storm. I left when I could. Every person in the hall held their breath. Adian's temper and insolence were near legendary. Part of the reason he was stationed in the far reaches of the north. Kaol had always thought it wise to keep him far from Rifthold. Especially as Adian seemed to be a bit of a two faced bastard. And the Bane, Adian's legion, was notorious for its skill and brutality but now why had the king summoned him to the capital the king picked up his goblet swirling the wine inside i didn't receive word that your legion was here they're not kaol braced for the execution order praying he wouldn't be the one to do it the king said i told you to bring them general here I was, thinking you wanted the pleasure of my company. When the king growled, Adian said, They'll be here within a week or so. I didn't want to miss any of the fun. Adian again shrugged those massive shoulders. At least I didn't come empty-handed. He snapped his fingers behind him, and a page rushed in, bearing a large satchel. Gifts from the North. Courtesy of the last rebel camp we sacked. You'll enjoy them. The king rolled his eyes and waved a hand at the page. Send them to my chambers. Your gifts, Adian, tend to offend polite company. A low chuckle. From Adian. From some men at the king's table. Oh, Adian was dancing a dangerous line. At least Selena had the good sense to keep her mouth shut around the king. Considering the trophies the king had collected from Selena as champion, the items in that satchel wouldn't be mere gold and jewels. But to collect heads and limbs from Adian's own people Selena's people. I have a council meeting tomorrow. I want you there, General, the king said. Adian put a hand on his chest. Your will is mine, majesty. Kaol had to clamp down on his terror as he beheld what glinted on Adian's finger. A black ring. The same that the king, Parrington, and most of those under their control wore. That explained why the king allowed the insolence. When it came down to it, the king's will truly was Adian's. Kaol kept his face blank as the king gave him a curt nod. Dismissal. Kaol silently bowed, now all too eager to get back to his table. Away from the king, from the man who held the fate of their world in his bloodied hands. Away from his father, who saw too much. Away from the general, who was now making his rounds through the hall, clapping men on the shoulder, winking at women. Kaol had mastered the horror roiling in his gut by the time he sank back into his seat and found Dorian frowning. Gifts indeed, the prince muttered. Gods, he's insufferable. Kaol didn't disagree. Despite the king's black ring, Adian still seemed to have a mind of his own and was as wild off the battlefield as he was on it, he usually made Dorian look like a celibate when it came to finding debauched ways to amuse himself. Kaol had never spent much time with Adrian, nor wanted to, but Dorian had known him for some time now, since they'd met his children. When Dorian and his father had visited Terrisson in the days before the royal family was slaughtered. When Dorian had met Aelin, met selena it was good that selena wasn't here to see what adian had become not just because of the ring to turn on your own people adian slid onto the bench across from them grinning a predator assessing prey you two were sitting at this same table the last time i saw you good to know some things don't change god's that face it was Selena's face. The other side of the coin. The same arrogance. The same unchecked anger. But where Selena crackled with it, Adian seemed to pulse. And there was something nastier, far more bitter in Adian's face. Dorian rested his forearms on the table and gave a lazy smile. Hello, Adian. Adian ignored him and reached for a roast leg of lamb, his black ring glinting. I like the new scar, Captain, he said, jerking his chin toward the slender white line across Kaol's cheek. The scar Selena had given to him the night Nehemia died and she'd tried to kill him. Now a permanent reminder of everything he'd lost. Adian went on. Looks like they didn't chew you up just yet. And they finally gave you a big boy sword, too. Dorian said, I'm glad to see that storm didn't dim your spirits. Weeks inside with nothing to do but train and bed women? It was a miracle I bothered to come down from the mountains. I didn't realize you bothered to do anything unless it served your best interests a low laugh. There's that charming Havilyard spirit. Adian dug into his meal, and Kaol was about to demand why he was bothering to sit with them, other than to torment them as he'd always liked to do when the king wasn't looking. When he noticed that Dorian was staring, not at Adian's sheer size or armor, but at his face, at his eyes, Shouldn't you be at some party or other? Kaol said to Adian. I'm surprised you're lingering when your usual enticements await in the city. Is that your courtly way of asking for an invitation to my gathering tomorrow, Captain? Surprising. You've always implied that you were above my sort of party. Those turquoise eyes narrowed, and he gave Dorian a sly grin. You, however... The last party I threw worked out very well for you. Red-headed twins, if I recall correctly. You'll be disappointed to learn I've moved on from that sort of existence, Dorian said. Adian dug back into his meal. More for me, then. Kaol clenched his fists under the table. Selena had not exactly been virtuous in the past ten years, but she'd never killed a natural born citizen of Terrison. Had refused to, actually. And Adian had always been a god's damned bastard. But now. Did he know what he wore on his finger? Did he know that despite his arrogance, his defiance, and insolence, the king could make him bend to his will whenever he pleased? He couldn't warn Adian not without potentially getting himself and everyone he cared about killed, should Adian truly have allegiance to the king. How are things in Tereson? Kaol asked, because Dorian was studying Adian again. What would you like me to tell you? That we are well fed after a brutal winter? That we did not lose many to sickness? Adian snorted. I suppose hunting rebels is always fun, if you've a taste for it. Hopefully, his majesty has summoned the bane to the south to finally give them some real action. As Adian reached for the water, Kaol glimpsed the hilt of his sword. Dull metal flecked with dings and scratches, its pommel nothing more than a bit of cracked, rounded horn. Such a simple, plain sword for one of the greatest warriors in Aurelia. The Sword of Orinth, Adian drawled. A gift from His Majesty upon my first victory. Everyone knew that sword. It had been an heirloom of Terrison's royal family, passed from ruler to ruler. By right, it was Selena's. It had belonged to her father. For Adian to possess it, considering what that sword now did, the lives it took was a slap in the face to selena and to her family i'm surprised you bother with such sentimentality dorian said symbols have power prince adian said pinning him with a stare selena stare unyielding and alive with challenge you'd be surprised by the power this still wields in the north what it does to convince people not to pursue foolhardy plans. Perhaps Selena's skills and cunning weren't unusual in her bloodline. But Adian was an ash river, not a Galathinius, which meant that his great grandmother had been Mab, one of the three fae Queens, in recent generations crowned a goddess and renamed Diana Lady of the Hunt. Kaol swallowed hard. Silence fell, taut as a bowstring. Trouble between you two? Adian asked, biting into his meat. Let me guess. A woman. The king's champion, perhaps. Rumor has it she's interesting. Is that why you've moved on from my sort of fun, princeling? He scanned the hall. I'd like to meet her, I think. Kaol fought the urge to grip his sword. She's away. Adian instead gave Dorian a cruel smile. Pity. Perhaps she might have convinced me to move on as well. Mind your mouth, Kaol snarled. He might have laughed had he not wanted to strangle the general so badly. Dorian merely drummed his fingers on the table. And show some respect. Adian chuckled, finishing off the lamb. I am his majesty's faithful servant, as I have always been. Those Ash River eyes once more settled on Dorian. Perhaps I'll be your whore day too. If you're still alive by then, Dorian purred. Adian went on eating, but Kaol could still feel his relentless focus pinned on them. Rumor has it a matron of a witch clan was killed on the premises not too long ago, Adian said casually. She vanished, though her quarters indicated she'd put up a hell of a fight. Dorian said sharply, What's your interest in that? I make it my business to know when the power brokers of the realm meet their end. A shiver spider walked down Kaol's spine. He knew little about the witches. Selena had told him a few stories, and he'd always prayed they were exaggerated. But something like dread flickered across Dorian's face. Kaol leaned forward. It's none of your concern adian again ignored him and winked at the prince dorian's nostrils flared the only sign of the rage that was rising to the surface that and the air in the room shifted brisker magic kaol put a hand on his friend's shoulder we're going to be late he lied but dorian caught it he had to get dorian out away from adian and try to leash the disastrous storm that was brewing between the two men. Rest well, Adian. Dorian didn't bother saying anything, his sapphire eyes frozen. Adian smirked. The party's tomorrow in Rifthold, if you feel like reliving the good old days, Prince. Oh, the general knew exactly what buttons to push, and he didn't give a damn what a mess it made. It made him dangerous, deadly. Especially where Dorian and his magic were concerned. Kaol forced himself to say goodnight to some of his men, to look casual and unconcerned as they walked from the dining hall. Adian Ashriver had come to Rifthold, narrowly missing running into his long-lost cousin. If Adian knew Aelin was still alive... If he knew who and what she had become, or what she had learned regarding the king's secret power, would he stand with her, or destroy her? Given his actions, given the ring he bore, Kaol didn't want the general anywhere near her, anywhere near Terrison either. He wondered how much blood would spill when Selena learned what her cousin had done. Kaol and Dorian walked in silence for most of the trek to the prince's tower. When they turned down an empty hallway and were certain no one could overhear them, Dorian said, I didn't need you to step in. Adian's a bastard, Kaol growled. The conversation could end there, and part of him was tempted to let it. But he made himself say, I was worried you'd snap like you did in the passages. He loosed a tight breath. Are you stable? Some days are better than others. Getting angry or frightened seems to set it off. They entered the hallway that ended in the arched wooden door to Dorian's tower. But Kaol stopped him with an arm on his shoulder. I don't want details, he murmured so the guards posted outside Dorian's door couldn't hear. Because I don't want my knowledge used against you. I know I've made mistakes, Dorian. Believe me, I know. But my priority has always been, and still is, keeping you protected. Dorian stared at him for a long moment, cocking his head to the side. Kaol must have looked as miserable as he felt, because the prince's voice was almost gentle, as he said. Why did you really send her to wendlin Agony punched through him, raw and razor-edged. But as much as he yearned to tell the prince about Selena, as much as he wanted to unload all his secrets so it would fill the hole in his core, he couldn't. So he just said, I sent her to do what needs to be done and strode back down the hall. Dorian didn't call after him. Chapter Four Manon pulled her blood-red cloak tightly around herself and pressed into the shadows of the closet, listening to the three men who had broken into her cottage. She'd tasted the rising fear and rage on the wind all day, and had spent the afternoon preparing. She'd been sitting on the thatched roof of the whitewashed cottage, when she spotted their torches bobbing over the high grasses of the field. None of the villagers had tried to stop the three men, though none had joined them either. A crock in witch had come to their little green valley in the north of Fen they'd said. In the weeks that she'd been living amongst them, carving out a miserable existence, She'd been waiting for this night. It was the same at every village she'd lived in or visited. She held her breath, keeping still as a deer as one of the men, a tall, bearded farmer with hands the size of dinner plates, stepped into her bedroom. Even from the closet, she could smell the ale on his breath and the bloodlust, Oh, the villagers knew exactly what they planned to do with the witch who sold potions and charms from her back door, and who could predict the sex of a babe before it was due. She was surprised it had taken these men so long to work up the nerve to come here, to torment and then destroy what petrified them. The farmer stopped in the middle of the room. We know you're here, he coaxed, even as he stepped toward the bed scanning every inch of the room. We just want to talk. Some of the townsfolk are spooked, you see. More scared of you than you are of them, I bet. She knew better than to listen, especially as a dagger glinted behind his back while he peered under the bed. Always the same, at every backwater town and uptight mortal village. As the man straightened, Manon slipped from the closet and into the darkness behind the bedroom door. Muffled clinking and thudding told her enough about what the other two men were doing. Not just looking for her, but stealing whatever they wanted. There wasn't much to take. The cottage had already been furnished when she'd arrived. And all her belongings, by training and instinct, were in a sack in the corner of the closet she'd just vacated. Take nothing with you. Leave nothing behind. We just want to talk, which. The man turned from the bed, finally noticing the closet. He smiled, in triumph, in anticipation. With gentle fingers, Manon eased the bedroom door shut. So quietly, the man didn't notice as he headed for the closet. She'd oiled the hinges on every door in this house. His massive hand gripped the closet doorknob, Dagger now angled at his side. Come out, little crocken, he crooned. Silent as death, Manon slid up behind him. The fool didn't even know she was there until she brought her mouth close to his ear and whispered, wrong kind of witch. The man whirled, slamming into the closet door. He raised the dagger between them, his chest heaving. Manon merely smiled, her silver-white hair glinting in the moonlight. He noticed the shut door then, drawing in breath to shout. But Manon smiled broader, and a row of dagger-sharp iron teeth pushed from the slits high in her gums, snapping down like armor. The man started, hitting the door behind him again, eyes so wide that white shone all around them. His dagger clattered on the floorboards, And then, just to really make him soil his pants, she flicked her wrists in the air between them. The iron claws shot over her nails in a stinging, gleaming flash. The man began whispering a plea to his soft-hearted gods as Manon let him back toward the lone window. Let him think he stood a chance while she stalked toward him, still smiling. The man didn't even scream before she ripped out his throat. When she was done with him, she slipped through the bedroom door. The two men were still looting, still believing that all of this belonged to her. It had been merely an abandoned house, its previous owners dead or smart enough to leave this festering place. The second man also didn't get a chance to scream before she gutted him with two swipes of her iron nails, but the third farmer came looking for his companions. And when he beheld her standing there, one hand twisted in his friend's insides, the other holding him to her as she used her iron teeth to tear out his throat, he ran. The common watery taste of the man, laced with violence and fear, coated her tongue, and she spat onto the wooden floorboards, But Manon didn't bother wiping away the blood slipping down her chin as she gave the remaining farmer a head start into the field of towering winter grass, so high that it was well over their heads. She counted to ten because she wanted to hunt and had been that way since she tore through her mother's womb and came roaring and bloody into this world. Because she was Manon Blackbeak, heir to the Blackbeak witch clan and she had been here for weeks, pretending to be a crocken witch in the hope that it would flush out the real ones. They were still out there, the self-righteous, insufferable crockens, hiding as healers and wise women. Her first glorious kill had been a crocken, no more than sixteen, the same age as Manon at the time. The dark-haired girl had been wearing the blood-red cloak that all crockens were gifted upon their first bleeding, and the only good it had done was mark her as prey. After Manon left the crockens' corpse in that snow-blasted mountain pass, she'd taken the cloak as a trophy and still wore it over a hundred years later. No other Iron Teeth witch could have done it, because no other iron teeth witch would have dared incur the wrath of the three matrons by wearing their eternal enemy's color. But from the day Manon stalked into Blackbeak Keep wearing the cloak and holding that crocken heart in a box, a gift for her grandmother, it had been her sacred duty to hunt them down, one by one, until there were none left. This was her latest rotation. Six months in Fenharrow while the rest of her coven was spread through Melisande and northern Eelway under similar orders. But in the months that she'd prowled from village to village, she hadn't discovered a single crocken. These farmers were the first bit of fun she'd had in weeks. And she would be damned if she didn't enjoy it. Manon walked into the field, sucking the blood off her nails as she went. She slipped through the grasses, no more than shadow and mist. She found the farmer lost in the middle of the field, softly bleeding with fear. And when he turned, his bladder loosening at the sight of the blood and the iron teeth and the wicked, wicked smile, Manon let him scream all he wanted. Chapter 5 Selena and Rowan rode down the dusty road that meandered between the boulder-spotted grasslands and into the southern foothills. She'd memorized enough maps of Wendland to know that they'd pass through them, and then over the towering Cambrian Mountains that marked the border between mortal-ruled Wendland and the immortal lands of Queen Maeve. The sun was setting as they ascended the foothills, the road growing rockier, "'bordered on one side by rather harrowing ravines. "'For a mile, she debated asking Rowan "'where he planned to stop for the night. "'But she was tired. "'Not just from the day, or the wine, or the riding "'In her bones, in her blood and breath and soul, "'she was so, so tired. "'Talking to anyone was too taxing, "'which made Rowan the perfect companion.' He didn't say a single word to her. Twilight fell as the road brought them through a dense forest that spread into and over the mountains, the trees turning from cypress to oak, from narrow to tall and proud, full of thickets and scattered mossy boulders. Even in the growing dark, the forest seemed to be breathing. The warm air hummed, leaving a metallic taste coating her tongue. Far behind them, Thunder grumbled. Wouldn't that be wonderful, especially since Rowan was finally dismounting to make camp? From the look of his saddlebags, he didn't have a tent, or bedrolls, or blankets. Perhaps it was now fair to assume that her visit with Maeve wasn't to be pleasant. Neither of them spoke as they led their horses into the trees just far enough off the road to be hidden from any passing travelers. Dumping their gear at the camp he'd selected, Rowan brought his mare to a nearby stream he must have heard with those pointed ears. He didn't falter one step in the growing dark, though Selena certainly stubbed her toes against a few rocks and roots. Excellent eyesight, even in the dark. Another fey trait. One she could have if she... No, she wasn't going to think about that. Not after what had happened on the other side of that portal. She'd shifted then, and it had been awful enough to remind her that she had no interest in ever doing it again. After the horses drank, Rowan didn't wait for her as he took both mares back to the camp. She used the privacy to see to her own needs, then dropped to her knees on the grassy bank and drank her fill of the stream gods the water tasted new and ancient and powerful and delicious she drank until she understood the hole in her belly might very well be from hunger then staggered back to the camp finding it by the gleam of rowan's silver hair he wordlessly handed her some bread and cheese then returned to rubbing down the horses she muttered a thank you but didn't bother offering to help as she plunked down against a towering oak. When her belly had stopped hurting so much, and she realized just how loudly she'd been munching on the apple he'd also tossed her while feeding the horses, she mustered enough energy to say, Are there so many threats in Wendland that we can't risk a fire? He sat against a tree and stretched his legs, crossing his ankles. Not from mortals his first words to her since they'd left the city. It could have been an attempt to spook her, but she still did a mental inventory of all the weapons she carried. She wouldn't ask, didn't want to know what manner of thing might crawl toward a fire. The tangle of wood and moss and stone loomed, full of the rustling of heavy leaves, the gurgling of the swollen brook, the flapping of feathered wings. And there, lurking over the rim of a nearby boulder, were three sets of small, glowing eyes. The hilt of her dagger was in her palm a heartbeat later. But they just stared at her. Rowan didn't seem to notice. He only leaned his head against the oak trunk. They had always known her, the little folk. Even when Otterland's shadow had covered the continent they still recognized what she was. Small gifts left at campsites. A fresh fish, a leaf full of blackberries, a crown of flowers. She'd ignored them, and stayed out of oak-walled forest as much as she could. The fairies kept their unblinking vigil. Wishing she hadn't downed the food so quickly, Selena watched them back, ready to spring to a defensive position, rowan hadn't moved what ancient oaths the fairies honored in Terrison might be disregarded here even as she thought it more eyes glowed between the trees more silent witnesses to her arrival because selena was Fay, or something like a mongrel her great-grandmother had been mave's sister proclaimed a goddess when she died ridiculous really Mab had been very much mortal when she tied her life to the human prince who loved her so fiercely. She wondered how much these creatures knew about the wars that had destroyed her land, about the Fae and Faeries that had been hunted down, about the burning of the ancient forests and the butchering of the sacred stags of Teresin. She wondered if they had ever learned what became of their brethren in the West. She didn't know how she found it in herself to care. But they seemed so. curious. Surprising even herself, Selena whispered into the humming night They still live. All those eyes vanished. When she glanced at Rowan, he hadn't opened his eyes but she had the sense that the warrior had been aware the entire time. Chapter 6 Dorian Havilyard stood before his father's breakfast table, his hands held behind his back. The king had arrived moments ago, but hadn't told him to sit. Once, Dorian might have already said something about it. But having magic... Getting drawn into whatever mess Selena was in, seeing that other world in the secret tunnels. All of that had changed everything. The best he could do these days was maintain a low profile, to keep his father or anyone else from looking too long in his direction. So Dorian stood before the table and waited. The King of Otterlin finished off the roast chicken and sipped from whatever was in his blood-red glass. You're quiet this morning, Prince. the conqueror of Aurelia reached for a platter of smoked fish. I was waiting for you to speak, Father. Night-black eyes shifted toward him, unusual indeed. Dorian tensed. Only Selena and Kaol knew the truth about his magic, and Kaol had shut him out so completely that Dorian didn't feel like attempting to explain himself to his friend. But this castle was full of spies and sycophants who wanted nothing more than to use whatever knowledge they could to advance their position, including selling out their crown prince. Who knew who'd seen him in the hallways or the library? or who had discovered that stack of books he'd hidden in Selena's rooms. He'd since moved them down to the tomb, where he went every other night, not for answers to the questions that plagued him, but just for an hour of pure silence. His father resumed eating. He'd been in his father's private chambers only a few times in his life. They could be a manor house of their own, with their library and dining room and council chamber. They occupied an entire wing of the glass castle, a wing opposite from Dorian's mother. His parents had never shared a bed, and he didn't particularly want to know more than that. He found his father watching him, the morning sun through the curved wall of glass making every scar and nick on the king's face even more gruesome. You're to entertain Adian Ash River today. Dorian kept his composure as best he could. Dare I ask why? Since General Ashriver failed to bring his men here, it appears he has some spare time while awaiting the Bane's arrival. It would be beneficial to you both to become better acquainted, especially when your choice of friends of late has been so... common... The cold fury of his magic climbed its way up his spine. With all due respect, father, I have two meetings to prepare for, and. It's not open for debate. His father kept eating. General Ash River has been notified, and you will meet him outside your chambers at noon. Dorian knew he should keep quiet, but he found himself asking, Why do you tolerate Adian? Why keep him alive? Why make him a general? He'd been unable to stop wondering about it since the man's arrival. His father gave a small, knowing smile. Because Adian's rage is a useful blade, and he is capable of keeping his people in line. He will not risk their slaughter, not when he has lost so much. He has quelled many a would-be rebellion in the North from that fear— for he is well aware that it would be his own people, the civilians, who suffered first. He shared blood with a man this cruel. But Dorian said, It's still surprising that you'd keep a general almost as a captive, as little more than a slave. Controlling him through fear alone seems potentially dangerous. Indeed, He wondered if his father had told Adian about Selena's mission to Wendland, homeland of Adian's royal bloodline, where Adian's cousins, the Ash Rivers, still ruled. Though Adian trumpeted about his various victories over rebels and acted like he practically owned half the empire himself, how much did Adian remember of his kin across the sea? His father said, I have my ways of leashing Adian should I need to. For now, his brazen irreverence amuses me. His father jerked his chin toward the door. I will not be amused, however, if you miss your appointment with him today. And just like that, his father fed him to the wolf. Despite Dorian's offers to show Adian the menagerie, the kennels, the stables, even the damned library, the general only wanted to do one thing walk through the gardens. Adian claimed he was feeling restless and sluggish from too much food the night before, but the smile he gave Dorian suggested otherwise. Adian didn't bother talking to him too preoccupied with humming body tunes and inspecting the various women they passed. He'd dropped the half-civilized veneer only once, when they'd been striding down a narrow path flanked by towering rose bushes, stunning in the summer, but deadly in the winter. And the guards had been a turn behind, blind for the moment. Just enough time for Adian to subtly trip Dorian into one of the thorny walls— still humming his lewd songs. A quick maneuver had kept Dorian from falling face-first into the thorns, but his cloak had ripped and his hand stung. Rather than give the general the satisfaction of seeing him hiss and inspect his cuts, Dorian had tucked his barking, freezing fingers into his pockets as the guards rounded the corner. They only spoke when Adian paused by a fountain and braced his scarred hands on his hips, assessing the garden beyond as though it were a battlefield. Adian smirked at the six guards lurking behind, his eyes bright. So bright, Dorian thought, and so strangely familiar, as the general said, A prince needs an escort in his own palace. I'm insulted they didn't send more guards to protect you from me. You think you could take six men. The wolf had let out a low chuckle and shrugged, the scarred hilt of the sword of Orinth catching the near-blinding sunlight. I don't think I should tell you, in case your father ever decides my usefulness is not worth my temperament. Some of the guards behind them murmured, but Dorian said, probably not. And that was it. That was all Adrian said to him for the rest of the cold, miserable walk. Until the general gave him an edged smile and said, Better get that looked at. That was when Dorian realized his right hand was still bleeding. Adian just turned away. Thanks for the walk, Prince, the general said over his shoulder. And it felt more like a threat than anything. Adian didn't act without a reason. Perhaps the general had convinced his father to force this excursion. But for what purpose, Dorian couldn't grasp. Unless Adian merely wanted to get a feel for what sort of man Dorian had become, and how well Dorian could play the game. He wouldn't put it past the warrior to have done it just to assess a potential ally or threat. Adian, for all his arrogance... Had a cunning mind. He probably viewed court life as another sort of battlefield. Dorian let Kaol's hand selected guards lead him back into the wonderfully warm castle, then dismissed them with a nod. Kaol hadn't come today, and he was grateful. After that conversation about his magic, after Kaol refused to speak about Selena, Dorian wasn't sure what else was left for them to talk about. He didn't believe for one moment that Kaol would willingly sanction the deaths of innocent men, no matter whether they were friends or enemies. Kaol had to know, then, that Selena wouldn't assassinate the Ash River Royals, for whatever reasons of her own. But there was no point in bothering to talk to Kaol, not when his friend was keeping secrets, too. Dorian mulled over his friend's puzzle box of words again, "'as he walked into the healer's catacombs. "'The smell of rosemary and mint wafting past. "'It was a warren of supply and examination rooms, "'kept far from the prying eyes of the glass castle high above. "'There was another ward high in the glass castle "'for those who wouldn't deign to make the trek down here. "'But this was where the best healers in Rifthold and Otterlin "'had honed and practiced their craft for a thousand years.' the pale stones seemed to breathe the essence of centuries of drying herbs giving the subterranean halls a pleasant open feeling dorian found a small workroom where a young woman was hunched over a large oak table a variety of glass jars scales mortars and pestles before her along with vials of liquid hanging herbs and bubbling pots over small solitary flames The healing arts were one of the few that his father hadn't completely outlawed ten years ago. Though once, he'd heard, they'd been even more powerful. Once, healers had used magic to mend and save. Now they were left with whatever nature provided them. Dorian stepped into the room, and the young woman looked up from the book she was scanning. A finger pausing on the page. Not beautiful, but pretty, Clean, elegant lines, chestnut hair woven in a braid, and golden tan skin that suggested at least one family member came from Eelway. Can I- She got a good look at him then, and dropped into a bow. Your Highness, she said, a flush creeping up the smooth column of her neck. Dorian held up his bloodied hand. Thornbush- Rosebush made his cuts seem that much more pathetic. She kept her eyes averted, biting her full bottom lip. Of course. She gestured a slender hand toward the wooden chair before the table. Please, unless... Unless you'd rather go to a proper examination room? Dorian normally hated dealing with the stammering and scrambling. But this young woman was still so red, so soft-spoken, that he said... This is fine, and slid into the chair. The silence lay heavy on him as she hurried through the workroom, first changing her dirty white apron, then washing her hands for a good long minute, then gathering all manner of bandages and tins of salve, then a bowl of hot water and clean rags, and then finally, finally pulling a chair around the table to face his. They didn't speak either when she carefully washed and then examined his hand. But he found himself watching her hazel eyes, the sureness of her fingers, and the blush that remained on her neck and face. The hand is very complex, she murmured at last, studying the cuts. I just wanted to make sure that nothing was damaged and that there weren't any thorns lodged in there. She swiftly added, Your Highness, I think it looks worse than it actually is. With a feather-light touch, she smeared a cloudy salve on his hand, and like a damn fool, he winced. Sorry, she mumbled. It's to disinfect the cuts, just in case. She seemed to curl in on herself, as if he'd give the order to hang her merely for that. He fumbled for the words, then said, I've dealt with worse. It sounded stupid coming out, and she paused for a moment before reaching for the bandages. I know she said, and glanced up at him. Well, damn, weren't those eyes just stunning? She quickly looked back down, gently, wrapping his hand. I'm assigned to the southern wing of the castle, and I'm often on night duty. That explained why she looked so familiar. She'd healed not only him that night a month ago, but also Selena, Kaol, Fleetfoot, had been there for all of their injuries these past seven months. I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. It's Sorsha, she said, though there was no anger in it, as there should have been. The spoiled prince and his entitled friends... Too absorbed in their own lives to bother learning the name of the healer who had patched them up again and again. She finished wrapping his hand, and he said, In case we didn't say it often enough, thank you. Those green-flecked brown eyes lifted again, a tentative smile. It's an honor, Prince. She began gathering up her supplies Taking that as his cue to leave, he stood and flexed his fingers. Feels good. They're minor wounds, but keep an eye on them. Sorcha dumped the bloodied water down the sink in the back of the room. And you needn't come all the way down here the next time. Just... just send word, your highness. We're happy to attend to you. She curtsied low, with the long-limbed grace of a dancer, You've been responsible for the southern stone wing all this time? The question within the question was clear enough. You've seen everything, every inexplicable injury. We keep records of our patients, Sorsha said softly, so no one else passing by the open doorway could hear. But sometimes we forget to write down everything. She hadn't told anyone what she'd seen, the things that didn't add up. Dorian gave her a swift bow of thanks and strode from the room. How many others, he wondered, had seen more than they let on? He didn't want to know. Sorsha's fingers, thankfully, had stopped shaking by the time the crown prince left the catacombs. By some lingering grace of Silba, goddess of healers and bringer of peace and gentle deaths she'd managed to keep them from trembling while she patched up his hand too Sorsha leaned against the counter and loosed a long breath the cuts hadn't merited a bandage but she'd been selfish and foolish and had wanted to keep the beautiful prince in that chair for as long as she could manage he didn't even know who she was She'd been appointed full healer a year ago, and had been called to attend to the prince, the captain, and their friend countless times. And the crown prince still had no idea who she was. She hadn't lied to him about failing to keep records of everything. But she remembered it all. Especially that night a month ago, when the three of them had been bloodied up and filthy. The girl's hound injured too with no explanation and no one raising a fuss. And the girl, their friend, the king's champion, that's who she was. Lover, it seemed, of both the prince and his captain at one time or another. Sorsha had helped Amethy tend to the young woman after the brutal duel to win her title. Occasionally, she'd checked on the girl and found the prince holding her in bed, She'd pretended it didn't matter, because the crown prince was notorious where women were involved. But it hadn't stopped the sinking ache in her chest. Then things had changed, and when the girl was poisoned with Gloriela, it was the captain who stayed with her. The captain who had acted like a beast in a cage, prowling the room until Sorsha's own nerves had been frayed, not surprisingly, several weeks later, the girl's handmaid, Philippa, came to Sorsha for a contraceptive tonic. Philippa hadn't said whom it was for, but Sorsha wasn't an idiot. When she'd attended the captain a week after that, four brutal scratches down his face and a dead look in his eyes. Sorsha had understood. And understood again the last time when the prince the captain and the girl were all bloodied along with the hound that whatever had existed between the three of them was broken the girl especially selena she'd heard them say accidentally when they thought she was already out of the room selena sardothian world's greatest assassin and now the king's champion another secret Sorcha would keep without them ever knowing. She was invisible, and glad of it most days. Sorcha frowned at her table of supplies. She had half a dozen tonics and poultices to make before dinner, all of them complex, all of them dumped on her by Amethy, who pulled rank whenever she could. On top of it, she still had her weekly letter to write to her friend, wanted every little detail about the palace. Just thinking of all the tasks gave her a headache. Had it been anyone other than the prince, she would have told them to go find another healer. Sorsha returned to her work. She was certain he'd forgotten her name the moment he left. Dorian was heir to the mightiest empire in the world- And Sorsha was the daughter of two dead immigrants from a village in Harrow that had been burned to ash. A village that no one would ever remember. But that didn't stop her from loving him, as she still did, invisible and secret. Ever since she'd first laid eyes on him six years ago. Chapter 7 Nothing else approached Selena and Rowan after that first night. He certainly didn't say anything to her about it, or offer his cloak or any sort of protection against the chill. She slept curled on her side, turning every other minute from some root or pebble digging into her back, or jolting awake at the screech of an owl, or something worse. By the time the light had turned grey and mist drifted through the trees, selena felt more exhausted than she'd been the night before after a silent breakfast of bread cheese and apples she was nearly dozing atop her mare as they resumed their ride up the forested foothill road they passed few people mostly humans leading wagons down to some market all of whom glanced at rowan and gave them the right of way some even muttered prayers for mercy She'd long heard the Fay existed peacefully with the humans in Wendlin. So perhaps the terror they encountered was due to Rowan himself. The tattoo didn't help. She had debated asking him what the words meant, but that would involve talking. And talking meant building some sort of relationship. She'd had enough of friends. Enough of them dying, too so she'd kept her mouth shut the entire day they rode through the woods up into the Cambrian Mountains. The forest turned lusher and denser, and the higher they rode, the mistier it became, great veils of fog drifting past to caress her face, her neck, her spine. Another cold, miserable night camped off the road later, and they were riding again before dawn. By then, The mist had seeped into her clothes and skin and settled right along her bones. On the third evening, she'd given up hoping for a fire. She'd even embraced the chill and the insufferable roots, and the hunger whose edge she couldn't dull no matter how much bread and cheese she ate. The aches and pains were soothing somehow. Not comforting, but distracting. Welcome. Deserved. She didn't want to know what that meant about her. She couldn't let herself look that far inward. She'd come close that day she'd seen Prince Gallon, and it had been enough. They veered from the path in the dwindling afternoon hours, cutting across mossy earth that cushioned each step. She hadn't seen a town in days, and the granite boulders were now carved with whorls and patterns. She supposed they were markers, a warning to humans to stay the hell away. They had to be another week from Dorinel, But Rowan was heading along the mountains, not over them, climbing higher still, the ascent broken by occasional plateaus and fields of wildflowers. She hadn't seen a lookout, so she had no sense of where they were or how high, just the endless forest, and the endless climb, and the endless mist. She smelled smoke before she saw the lights. Not campfires, but lights from a building rising up out of the trees, hugging the spine of the mountain slope. The stones were dark and ancient, hewn from something other than the abundant granite. Her eyes strained, but she didn't fail to notice the ring of towering rocks woven between the trees, surrounding the entirety of the fortress. It was hard not to notice them when they rode between two megaliths that curved toward each other, like the horns of a great beast, and a zinging current snapped against her skin. Wards. Magic wards. Her stomach turned. If they didn't keep out enemies, they certainly served as an alarm. Which meant the three figures patrolling each of the three towers, the six on the outer retaining wall, and the three at the wooden gates, would now know they were approaching. Men and women in light leather armor and bearing swords, daggers, and bows monitored their approach. I think I'd rather stay in the woods, she said. Her first words in days. Rowan ignored her. He didn't even lift an arm in greeting to the sentries. He must be familiar with this place if he didn't stoop to hellos. As they drew closer to the ancient fortress, which was little more than a few watchtowers woven together by a large connecting building, splattered with lichen and moss, she did the calculations. It had to be some border outpost a halfway point between the mortal realm and Doranell. Perhaps she'd finally have a warm place to sleep, even if just for the night. The guards saluted Rowan, who didn't spare them a passing glance. They all wore hoods, masking any signs of their heritage. Were they Fey? Rowan might not have spoken to her for most of their journey. He'd shown as much interest in her as he would in a pile of shit on the road. But if she were staying with the Fay, others might have questions. She took in every detail, every exit, every weakness as they entered the large courtyard beyond the wall. Two rather mortal-looking stable hands rushing to help them dismount. It was so still, as if everything, even the stones, was holding its breath as if it had been waiting. The sensation only worsened when Rowan wordlessly led her into the dim interior of the main building, up a narrow set of stone stairs, and into what looked to be a small office. It wasn't the carved oak furniture, or the faded green drapes, or the warmth of the fire that made her stop dead. It was the dark-haired woman seated behind the desk. Maeve. Queen of the Fae. Her aunt. And then came the words she had been dreading for ten years. Hello, Aelin Galathinius. Chapter Eight. Selena backed away, knowing exactly how many steps it would take to get into the hall but slammed into a hard, unyielding body just as the door shut behind them. Her hands were shaking so badly she didn't bother going for her weapons, or Rowan's. He'd cut her down the instant Maeve gave the order. The blood rushed from Selena's head. She forced herself to take a breath, and another. Then she said in a too quiet voice, Aelin Galathinius is dead just speaking her name aloud. The damned name she had dreaded and hated and tried to forget. Maeve smiled, revealing sharp little canines. Let us not bother with lies. It wasn't a lie. That girl, that princess, had died in a river a decade ago. Selena was no more Ailen Galathinius than she was any other person, The room was too hot, too small, Rowan a brooding force of nature behind her. She was not to have time to gather herself, to make up excuses and half-truths, as she should have been doing these past few days instead of free-falling into silence and the misty cold. She was to face the Queen of the Fae as Maeve wanted to be faced and in some fortress that seemed far, far beneath the raven-haired beauty watching her with black, depthless eyes. Gods. Gods. Maeve was fearsome in her perfection. Utterly still, eternal and calm and radiating ancient grace. The dark sister to the fair-haired Mab. Selena had been fooling herself into thinking this would be easy, She was still pressed against Rowan as though he were a wall. An impenetrable wall, as old as the ward stones surrounding the fortress. Rowan stepped away from her with his powerful predatory ease and leaned against the door. She wasn't getting out until Maeve allowed her. The Queen of the Fae remained silent, her long fingers moon-white, and folded in the lap of her violet gown, a white barn owl perched on the back of her chair. She didn't bother with a crown, and Selena supposed she didn't need one. Every creature on Earth would know who she was, what she was, even if they were blind and deaf. Maeve, the face of a thousand legends and nightmares. Epics and poems and songs had been written about her, so many that some even believed she was just a myth. But here was the dream, the nightmare, made flesh. This could work to your advantage. You can get the answers you need right here, right now. Go back to Otterlin in a matter of days. Just breathe. Breathing, as it turned out, was rather hard when the queen who had been known to drive men to madness for amusement was observing every flicker of her throat. That owl perched on Maeve's chair- Faye, or true beast, was watching her too. Its talons were curled around the back of the chair, digging into the wood. It was somewhat absurd, though. Maeve holding court in this half-rotted office, at a desk stained with the word knew what. Gods, the fact that Maeve was seated at a desk... She should be in some ethereal glen surrounded by bobbing willow-the-wisps and maidens dancing to lutes and harps reading the wheeling stars like they were poetry not here. Selena bowed low. She supposed she should have gotten on her knees but she already smelled awful and her face was likely still torn and bruised from her brawling in Vera's. As Selena rose Maeve remained smiling faintly a spider with a fly in its web. I suppose that with a proper bath, you look a good deal like your mother. No exchanging pleasantries, then. Maeve was going right for the throat. She could handle it. She could ignore the pain and terror to get what she wanted. So Selena smiled just as faintly and said, Had I known who I would be meeting, I might have begged my escort for time to freshen up. She didn't feel bad for one heartbeat about throwing Rowan to the lions. Maeve's obsidian eyes flicked to Rowan, who still leaned against the door. She could have sworn there was approval in the Fay Queen's smile, as if the grueling travel were a part of this plan, too. But why? Why get her off kilter? I'm afraid I must bear the blame for the pressing pace, Maeve said. Though I suppose he could have bothered to at least find you a pool to bathe in along the way. The Queen of Fadum lifted an elegant hand, gesturing to the warrior. Prince Rowan. Prince? She swallowed the urge to turn to him. Is from my sister Mora's bloodline. He is my nephew of sorts, and a member of my household. An extremely distant relation of yours- There is some ancient ancestry linking you. Another move to get her on uneven footing. You don't say. Perhaps that wasn't the best reply. She should probably be on the floor, groveling for answers. And she had a feeling she'd likely get to that point very, very soon. But you must be wondering why it is I asked Prince Rowan to bring you here. Maeve mused. For Nehemia, she'd play this game. Selena bit her tongue hard enough to keep her God's damned smart-ass mouth shut. Maeve placed her white hands on the desk. I have been waiting a long, long while to meet you. And as I do not leave these lands, I could not see you. Not with my eyes, at least. The queen's long nails gleamed in the light. There were legends whispered over fires about the other skin Maeve wore. No one had lived to tell anything beyond shadows and claws and a darkness to devour your soul. They broke my laws, you know. Your parents disobeyed my commands when they eloped. The bloodlines were too volatile to be mixed, but your mother promised to let me see you after you were born. Maeve cocked her head, eerily similar to the owl behind her. It would seem that in the eight years after your birth, she was always too busy to uphold her vow. If her mother had broken a promise, if her mother had kept her from Maeve, it had been for a damn good reason. A reason that tickled at the edges of Selena's mind, a blur of memory. "'But now you are here,' Maeve said, seeming to come closer without moving. "'And a grown woman.' "'My eyes across the sea have brought me such strange, horrible stories of you. "'From your scars and steel, I wonder whether they are indeed true.' like the tale i heard over a year ago that an assassin with ash river eyes was spotted by the horned lord of the north in a wagon bound for enough selena glanced at rowan who was listening intently as if this was the first he was hearing of it she didn't want him knowing about indovier didn't want that pity i know my own history She flashed Rowan a glare that told him to mind his own business. He merely looked away, bored again. Typical immortal arrogance. Selena faced Maeve, tucking her hands into her pockets. I'm an assassin, yes. A snort from behind, but she didn't dare take her eyes off Maeve. And your other talents? Maeve's nostrils flared, scenting what has become of them. Like everyone else on my continent, I haven't been able to access them. Maeve's eyes twinkled, and Selena knew, knew that Maeve could smell the half-truth. You are not on your continent any more, Maeve purred. Run. Every instinct roared with the word. She had a feeling that the eye of Elena would have been no use. But she wished she had it anyway. Wished the dead queen were here, for that matter. Rowan was still at the door. But if she was fast, if she outsmarted him... A flash of memory blinded her, bright and uncontrollable. Unleashed by the instinct begging her to flee her mother had rarely let Faye into their home, even with her heritage. A few trusted ones were allowed to live with them, but any Faye visitors had been closely monitored, and for the duration of their stay, Selena had been sequestered in the family's private chambers. She'd always thought it was overprotective, but now... Show me, Maeve whispered with a spider smile. Run. Run! She could still feel the burn of blue wildfire exploding out of her in that demon realm. Still see Chaos' face as she lost control of it. One wrong move. One wrong breath. And she could have killed him and Fleetfoot. The owl rustled its wings. The wood groaning beneath its talons. And the darkness in Maeve's eyes spread. Reaching there was a faint pulse in the air, a throbbing against her blood. A tapping, then a razor-sharp slicing against her mind, as if Maeve were trying to cleave open her skull and peer inside. Pushing, testing, tasting. Fighting to keep her breathing steady, Selena positioned her hands within easy reach of her blades as she pushed back against the claws in her mind, Maeve let out a low laugh, and the pressure in her head ceased. "'Your mother hid you from me for years,' Maeve said. "'She and your father always had a remarkable talent "'for knowing when my eyes were searching for you. "'Such a rare gift, the ability to summon and manipulate flame. "'So few exist who possess more than an ember of it,' Fewer still who can master its wildness. And yet your mother wanted you to stifle your power, though she knew that I only wanted you to submit to it. Selena's breath burned her throat. Another flicker of memory, of lessons not about starting fires but putting them out. Maeve went on: Look how well that turned out for them. Selena's blood froze. Every self-preserving instinct went right out of her head. And where were you ten years ago? She spoke so low, from so deep in her shredded soul, that the words were barely more than a growl. Maeve angled her head slightly. I do not take kindly to being lied to. The snarl on Selena's face faltered. Dropped right into her gut. Aid had never come for Terrison from the Fay, from Wendlin. And it was all because, because. I do not have more time to spare you, Maeve said, so let me be brief. My eyes have told me that you have questions, questions that no mortal has the right to ask, about the keys. Legend said Maeve could commune with the spirit world. Had Elena or Nehemia told her? Selena opened her mouth, but Maeve held up a hand. I will give you those answers. You may come to me in Doranell to receive them. Why not? A growl from Rowan at the interruption. Because they are answers that require time. Maeve said, then slowly added, as if she savored every word, and answers you have not yet earned. Tell me what I can do to earn them and I will do it. Fool, a damned fool's response. A dangerous thing to offer without hearing the price. You want me to show you my magic? I'll show it to you, but not here, not I have no interest in seeing you drop your magic at my feet like a sack of grain. I want to see what you can do with it, Aelin Galathinius, which currently seems like not very much at all. Selena's stomach tightened at that cursed name. I want to see what you will become under the right circumstances. I don't- I do not permit mortals or half-breeds into Doronel. For a half-breed to enter my realm, she must prove herself both gifted and worthy. Mistward, this fortress, she waved a hand to encompass the room, is one of several proving grounds, and a place where those who do not pass the test can spend their days. Beneath the growing fear, A flicker of disgust went through her. Half-breed. Maeve said it with such disdain. And what manner of test might I expect before I am deemed worthy? Maeve gestured to Rowan, who had not moved from the door. You shall come to me once Prince Rowan decides that you have mastered your gifts. He shall train you here, and you shall not set foot in Doronel until he deems your training complete. After facing the horseshit she'd seen in the glass castle, demons, witches, the king, training with Rowan, even in magic, seemed rather anticlimactic. But... But it could take weeks, months, years. The familiar fog of nothing crept in, Threatening to smother her once again. She pushed it back long enough to say, What I need to know isn't something that can wait. You want answers regarding the keys, heir of Terrisson? Then they shall be waiting for you in Doronel. The rest is up to you. Truthfully, Selena blurted. You will truthfully answer my questions about the keys. Maeve smiled. And it was not a thing of beauty. You haven't forgotten all of our ways, then. When Selena didn't react, Maeve added, I will truthfully answer all of your questions about the keys. It might be easier to walk away. Go find some other ancient being to pester for the truth. Selena breathed in and out, in and out. But Maeve had been there, had been there at the dawn of this world during the Volg Wars. She had held the word keys. She knew what they looked like, how they felt. Maybe she even knew where Brannon had hidden them, especially the last unnamed key. And if Selena could find a way to steal the keys from the king, to destroy him, to stop his armies and free Eelway even if she could find just one word key. What manner of training? Prince Rowan shall explain the specifics. For now, he will escort you to your chamber to rest. Selena looked Maeve straight in her death-dealing eyes. You swear you'll tell me what I need to know? I do not break my promises, and I have the feeling that you are unlike your mother in that regard, too. Bitch. Bitch, she wanted to hiss. But then Maeve's eyes flicked to Selena's right palm. She knew everything. Through whatever spies or power or guesswork, Maeve knew everything about her and the vow to Nehemia. To what end? Selena asked softly the anger and the fear dragging her down into an inescapable exhaustion. You want me to train only so I can make a spectacle of my talents? Maeve ran a moon-white finger down the owl's head. I wish you to become who you were born to be. To become queen. Become queen. The words haunted Selena that night kept her from sleeping even though she was so exhausted she could have wept for the dark-eyed silba to put her out of her misery queen the word throbbed right along with the fresh split lip that also made sleeping very uncomfortable she could thank rowan for that after mave's command selena hadn't bothered with goodbyes before walking out Rowan had only cleared the way because Maeve gave him a nod, and he followed Selena into a narrow hallway that smelled of roasting meat and garlic. Her stomach grumbled, but she'd probably hurl her guts up the second she swallowed anything. So she trailed Rowan down the corridor, down the stairs, each footstep alternating between iron-willed control and growing rage. Left. Nehemia Right. You made a vow, and you will keep it by whatever means necessary. Left. Training. Queen. Right. Bitch. Manipulative, cold-blooded, sadistic bitch. Ahead of her, Rowan's own steps were silent on the dark stones of the hallway. The torches hadn't been lit yet, and in the murky interior, she could hardly tell he was there. But she knew, if only because she could almost feel the ire radiating off him. Good. At least one other person wasn't particularly thrilled about this bargain. Training. Training. Her whole life had been training, from the moment she was born. Rowan could train her until he was blue in the face- and as long as it got her the answers about the word keys, she'd play along. But it didn't mean that, when the time came, she had to do anything, certainly not take up her throne. She didn't even have a throne, or a crown, or a court, didn't want them. And she could bring down the king as Selena Sardafian, thank you very much. She tightened her fingers into fists. They encountered no one as they descended a winding staircase and started down another corridor. Did the residents of this fortress, Mistward, Maeve had called it, know who was in that study upstairs? Maeve probably got off on terrifying them. Maybe she had all of them, half-breeds, she called them, enslaved through some bargain or another. Disgusting. Disgusting. It was disgusting to keep them here just for having a mixed heritage. That was no fault of theirs. Selena finally opened up her mouth. You must be very important to her immortal majesty if she put you on nurse duty. Given your history, she didn't trust anyone but her best to keep you in line. Oh, the prince wanted to tangle. Whatever self-control he'd had on their trek to the fortress was hanging by a thread. Good. Playing warrior in the woods doesn't seem like the greatest indicator of talent. i fought on killing fields long before you, your parents, or your granduncle were even born. She bristled, exactly like he wanted. Who's to fight here except birds and beasts? Silence. Then, the world is a far bigger and more dangerous place than you can imagine, girl. Consider yourself blessed to receive any training, to have the chance to prove yourself. I've seen plenty of this big and dangerous world, princeling. A soft, harsh laugh. Just wait, Aelin. Another jab, and she let herself fall for it don't call me that it's your name i'm not going to call you anything different she stepped in his path getting right near those two sharp canines no one here can know who i am do you understand his green eyes gleamed animal bright in the dark my aunt has given me a harder task than she realizes i think my aunt not our aunt And then she said one of the foulest things she'd ever uttered in her life, bathing in the pure hate of it. They, like you, make me understand the King of Otterland's actions a bit more, I think. Faster than she could sense, faster than anything had a right to be, he punched her. She shifted enough to keep her nose from shattering, but took the blow on her mouth. She hit the wall, whacked her head, and tasted blood good he struck again with that immortal speed or would have but with equally unnerving swiftness he halted his second blow before it fractured her jaw and snarled in her face low and vicious her breathing turned ragged as she purred do it he looked more interested in ripping out her throat than in talking but he held the line he'd drawn Why should I give you what you want? You're just as useless as the rest of your brethren. He let out a soft, lethal laugh that raked claws down her temper. If you're that desperate to eat stone, go ahead. I'll let you try to land the next punch. She knew better than to listen. But there was such a roar in her blood that she could no longer see right, think right, breathe right so she damned the consequences to hell as she swung. Selena hit nothing but air. Air. And then his foot hooked behind hers in an efficient maneuver that sent her careening into the wall once more. Impossible. He'd tripped her as if she was nothing more than a trembling novice. He was now a few feet away, arms crossed. She spat blood and swore. He smirked. It was enough to send her hurtling for him again, to tackle or pummel or strangle him, she didn't know. She caught his left feint, but when she dove right, he moved so swiftly that despite her lifetime of training, she crashed into a darkened brazier behind him. The clatter echoed through the too quiet hall as she landed face first on the stone floor, her teeth singing. Like I said, Rowan sneered down at her. You have a lot to learn, about everything. Her lip already aching and swollen, she told him exactly what he could go do to himself. He sauntered down the hall. Next time you say anything like that, he said without looking over his shoulder. I'll have you chopping wood for a month. Fuming, hatred and shame already burning her face, Selena got to her feet. He dumped her in a very small, very cold room that looked like little more than a prison cell, letting her take all of two steps inside before he said, Give me your weapons. Why? And no. Like hell she'd give him her daggers. In a swift movement, he grabbed a bucket of water from beside her door and tossed the contents onto the hall floor before holding it out. Give me your weapons. "'Training with him would be absolutely wonderful. "'Tell me why. "'I don't have to explain myself to you. "'Then we're going to have another brawl.' "'His tattoo seeming impossibly darker in the dim hall. "'He stared at her beneath lowered brows as if to say, "'You call that a brawl?' "'But instead he growled, "'Starting at dawn, you'll earn your keep by helping in the kitchen.' Unless you plan to murder everyone in the fortress, there is no need for you to be armed, or to be armed while we train. So I'll keep your daggers until you've earned them back. Well, that felt familiar. The kitchen? He bared his teeth in a wicked grin. Everyone pulls their weight here, princesses included. No one's above some hard labor, least of all you. And didn't she have the scars to prove it? Not that she'd tell him that. She didn't know what she'd do if he learned about Endovier and mocked her for it, or pitied her. So my training includes being a scullery maid? Part of it. Again, she could have sworn she could read the unspoken words in his eyes. And I'm going to savor every damn second of your misery. For an old bastard, you certainly haven't bothered to learn manners at any point in your long existence. Never mind that he looked to be in his late twenties. Why should I waste flattery on a child who's already in love with herself? We're related, you know. We've as much blood in common as I do with the fortress pig boy. She felt her nostrils flare, and he shoved the bucket in her face. She almost knocked it right back into his but decided that she didn't want a broken nose and began disarming herself. Rowan counted every weapon she put in the bucket, as though he'd already learned how many she'd been carrying, even the hidden ones. Then he tucked the bucket against his side and slammed the door without so much of a goodbye beyond, Be ready at dawn. Bastard. Old, stinking bastard, she muttered, surveying the room. A bed, a chamber pot, and a wash basin with icy water. She debated a bath, but opted to use the water to clean out her mouth and tend to her lip. She was starving, but going to find food involved meeting people. So once she'd mended her lip as best she could with the supplies in her satchel, she tumbled into bed, reeking vagrant clothes and all, and lay there for several hours. There was one small window with no coverings in her room. Selena turned over in bed to look through it to the patch of stars above the trees surrounding the fortress. Lashing out at Rowan like that? Saying the things she did? Trying to fight with him? She deserved that punch. More than deserved it. If she was being honest with herself, she was barely passable as a human being these days. She fingered her split lip and winced. She scanned the night sky until she located the stag, the Lord of the North. The unmoving star atop the stag's head, the Eternal Crown, pointed the way to Terrison. She'd been told that the great rulers of Terracen turned into those bright stars, so their people would never be alone, and would always know the way home. She hadn't set foot there in ten years, while he'd been her master, Aerobin hadn't let her. And afterward, she hadn't dared. She had whispered the truth that day at Nehemia's grave. She'd been running for so long that she didn't know what it was to stand and fight. Selena loosed a breath and rubbed her eyes. What Maeve didn't understand, what she could never understand— was just how much that little princess in Terrison had damned them a decade ago. Even worse than Maeve herself had. She had damned them all, and then left the world to burn into ash and dust. So Selena turned away from the stars, nestling under the threadbare blanket against the frigid cold, and closed her eyes, trying to dream of a different world. A world where she was no one at all. Chapter 9 Manon Blackbeak stood on a cliff beside the snow swollen river. Eyes closed as the damp wind bit her face. There were few sounds she enjoyed more than the groans of dying men. But the wind was one of them. Leaning into the breeze was the closest she came to flying these days. Save in rare dreams, when she was again in the clouds, her ironwood broom still functioning, not the scrap of useless wood it was now, chucked into the closet of her room at Blackbeak Keep. It had been ten years since she'd tasted mist and cloud and ridden on the back of the wind. Today would have been a flawless flying day, the wind wicked and fast. Today she would have soared. Behind her, Mother Blackbeak was still talking with the enormous man from the caravan who called himself a duke. It had been more than coincidence, she supposed, that soon after she'd left that blood-soaked field in Harrow, she'd received a summons from her grandmother. And more than coincidence that she'd been not 40 miles from the rendezvous point just over the border in Otterland. Manon was on guard duty while her grandmother, the High Witch of the Blackbeak clan, Spoke to the Duke beside the raging Acanthus River. The rest of her coven had taken their positions around the small encampment. Twelve other witches, all around Manon's age, all of them raised and trained together. Like Manon, they had no weapons, but it seemed that the Duke knew enough to realize Blackbeaks didn't need weapons to be deadly. You didn't need a weapon at all when you were born one and when you were one of Manon's thirteen, with whom she had fought and flown for the past hundred years, often just the name of the coven was enough to send enemies fleeing. The thirteen did not have a reputation for mercy or making mistakes. Manon eyed the armored guards around the camp. Half were watching the Blackbeak witches, the others monitoring the duke and her grandmother. It was an honor that the High Witch had chosen the Thirteen to guard her. No other coven had been summoned. No other coven was needed if the Thirteen were present. Manon slid her attention to the nearest guard. His sweat, the faint tang of fear, and the heavy musk of exhaustion drifted toward her. From the look and smell of it, they'd been traveling for weeks. There were two prison wagons with them. One emitted a very distinct male odor, and perhaps a remnant of cologne. One was female. Both smelled wrong. Manon had been born soulless, her grandmother said. Soulless and heartless, as a black beak ought to be. She was wicked, right down to the marrow of her bones. But the people in those wagons, and the Duke, they smelled wrong. Different. Alien. The nearby guard shifted on his feet. She gave him a smile. His hand tightened on the hilt of his sword. Because she could, because she was growing bored, Manon cocked her jaw, sending her iron teeth snapping down. The guard took a step back, his breath coming faster, the acrid tang of fear sharpening. With her moon-white hair, alabaster skin, and burnt gold eyes, she'd been told by ill-fated men that she was beautiful as a fae queen. But what those men realized too late was that her beauty was merely a weapon in her natural-born arsenal. And it made things so, so fun. Feet crunched in the snow and bits of dead grass, and Manon turned from the trembling guard and the roaring brown acanthus to find her grandmother approaching. In the ten years since magic had vanished, their aging process had warped. Manon herself was well over a century old, but until ten years ago she had looked no older than sixteen. Now she looked to be in her mid-twenties. They were aging like mortals, they had soon realized with no small amount of panic. And her grandmother the rich, voluminous midnight robes of Mother Blackbeak flowed like water in the crisp breeze. Her grandmother's face was now marred with the beginnings of wrinkles, her ebony hair sprinkled with silver. The High Witch of the Blackbeak clan wasn't just beautiful. She was alluring. Even now, with mortal years pressing down upon her bone-white skin, there was something entrancing about the matron. We leave now, "'Mother Blackbeak said, walking north along the river. "'Behind them, the Duke's men closed ranks around the encampment. "'Smart for mortals to be so cautious when the Thirteen were present, and bored. "'One jerk of the chin from Manon was all it took for the Thirteen to fall in line. "'The twelve other sentinels kept the required distance behind Manon and her grandmother, "'footsteps near silent in the winter grass.' None of them had been able to find a single crocken in the months they'd been infiltrating town after town, and Manon fully expected some form of punishment for it later. Flogging, perhaps a few broken fingers, nothing too permanent, but it would be public. That was her grandmother's preferred method of punishment, not the how, but the humiliation. Yet her grandmother's gold-flecked black eyes, the heirloom of the Blackbeak clan's purest bloodline, were bent on the northern horizon, toward Oakwald forest and the towering white fangs far beyond. The gold-speckled eyes were the most cherished trait in their clan for a reason Manon had never bothered to learn. And when her grandmother had seen that Manons were wholly of pure dark gold, the matron had carried her away from her daughter's still-cooling corpse, and proclaimed Manon as her undisputed heir. Her grandmother kept walking, and Manon didn't press her to speak, not unless she wanted her tongue ripped clean from her mouth. We're to travel north, her grandmother said, when the encampment was swallowed up by the foothills. I want you to send three of your thirteen south, west, and east. They are to seek out our kith and kin." And inform them that we will all assemble in the ferian gap, every last blackbeak, no witch or sentinel left behind. Nowadays, there was no difference. Every witch belonged to a coven and was therefore a sentinel. Since the downfall of their western kingdom, since they had started clawing for their survival, every black beak, yellow legs, and blue blood had to be ready to fight ready at any time to reclaim their lands or die for their people. Manon herself had never set foot in the former witch kingdom, had never seen the ruins or the flat green expanse that stretched to the western sea. None of her thirteen had seen it either, all of them wanderers and exiles thanks to a curse from the last crock queen as she bled out on that legendary battlefield. The matron went on, still staring at the mountains. And if your sentinels see members of the other clans, they are to inform them to gather in the gap, too. No fighting, no provoking. Just spread the word. Her grandmother's iron teeth flashed in the afternoon sun. Like most of the ancient witches, the ones who had been born in the witch kingdom and fought in the Iron Teeth Alliance to shatter the chains of the Crocken Queens, Mother Blackbeak wore her iron teeth permanently on display. Manon had never seen them retracted. Manon bit back her questions. The Farian Gap, the deadly, blasted bit of land between the White Fang and Rune Mountains, and one of the few passes between the fertile lands of the east and the western wastes. Manon had made the passage through the snow-crusted labyrinth of caves and ravines on foot. Just once— with the Thirteen and two other covens, right after magic had vanished, when they were all nearly blind, deaf, and dumb with the agony of suddenly being grounded. Half of the other witches hadn't made it through the gap. The Thirteen had barely survived, and Manon had almost lost an arm to an ice cavern cave-in. Almost lost it, but kept it thanks to the quick thinking of Asterin, her second-in-command, and the brute strength of Sorrel, her third. The and Gap? Manon hadn't been back since. For months now, there had been rumors of far darker things than witches dwelling there. Baba Yellowlegs is dead. Manon whipped her head to her grandmother, who was smiling faintly. Killed in Rifthold, the duke received word. No one knows who or why. Crokins? Perhaps. Mother Blackbeak's smile spread, revealing iron teeth spotted with rust. The King of Otterland has invited us to assemble in the Farian Gap. He says he has a gift for us there. Manon considered what she knew about the vicious, deadly king, hell-bent on conquering the world. Her responsibility as both coven leader and heir was to keep her grandmother alive. It was instinct to anticipate every pitfall, every potential threat. It could be a trap, to gather us in one place and then destroy us. He could be working with the crockens, or perhaps the bluebloods. They've always wanted to make themselves high witches of every Iron Teeth clan. Oh, I think not, Mother Blackbeak purred, her depthless ebony eyes crinkling. For the king has made us an offer, made all the Iron Teeth clans an offer. Manon waited, even though she could have gutted someone just to ease the miserable impatience. The king needs riders, Mother Blackbeak said, still staring at the horizon. Riders for his wyverns, to be his aerial cavalry. He's been breeding them in the gap all these years. It had been a while, too damn long. But Manon could feel the threads of fate twisting around them, tightening. Tightening. And when we are done, when we have served him, he will let us keep the wyverns, to take our host, to reclaim the wastes from the mortal pigs who now dwell there. A fierce, wild thrill pierced Manon's chest, sharp as a knife. Following the matron's gaze, Manon looked to the horizon, where the mountains were still blanketed with winter. To fly again to soar through the mountain passes, to hunt down prey the way they'd been born to. They weren't enchanted ironwood brooms, but wyverns would do just fine. Chapter 10 After a grueling day of training new recruits, avoiding Dorian and keeping well away from the king's watchful eye, Kaol was almost at his room's more than ready to sleep. When he noticed that two of his men were missing from their posts outside the great hall, the two remaining men winced as he stopped dead. It wasn't unusual for guards to occasionally miss a shift. If someone was sick, if they had some family tragedy, Kaol always found a replacement. But two missing guards with no replacement in sight? Someone had better start talking, ground out. One of them cleared their throats, a newer guard, who had just finished his training three months before. The other one was relatively new, too, which was why he'd assigned them to night duty outside the empty Great Hall. But he'd put them under the supposedly responsible and watchful eyes of the two other guards, both of whom had been there for years. The guard who'd cleared his throat went red. It... They said, uh, Captain, they said that no one would really notice if they were gone, since it's the Great Hall, and it's empty, and, uh. Use your words, Kaol snapped. He was going to murder the two deserters. The General's party, sir, said the other. General Ashriver walked past on his way into Rifthold and invited them to join him. He said it would be all right with you, so they went with him a muscle feathered in his jaw. Of course, Adian did. And you two, Kaol growled, didn't think it would be useful to report this to anyone? With all due respect, sir, said the second one. We were... We didn't want them to think we were ratters, and it's just the Great Hall. Wrong thing to say, Kaol snarled. You're both on double duty for a month in the gardens, where it was still freezing. Your leisure time is now non-existent, and if you ever again fail to report another guard abandoning his post, you're both gone. Understood? When he got a mumbled confirmation, he stalked toward the front gate of the castle. Like hell he'd go to sleep now. He had two guards to hunt down in Rifthold, and a general to exchange some words with. Adian had rented out an entire tavern. Men were at the door to keep out the riffraff, but one glare from Kaol, one glimpse of the eagle-shaped pommel of his sword, had them stepping aside. The tavern was crammed with various nobles, some women who could have been courtesans or courtiers, and men, lots of drunk, boisterous men. Card games, dice, body singing to the music made by the small quintet by the roaring fire, free-flowing taps of ale, bottles of sparkling wine. Was Adian going to pay for this with his blood money, or was it on the king? Kaol spotted his two guards, plus a half-dozen others, playing cards, women in their laps, grinning like fiends, until they saw him. They were still groveling as Kaol sent them packing, back to the castle where he would deal with them tomorrow. He couldn't decide whether they deserved to lose their positions since Adian had lied, and he didn't like making choices like that unless he'd slept on them first. So out they went into the freezing night. And then Kaol began the process of hunting down the general. But no one knew where he was. First, someone sent Kaol upstairs to one of the tavern's bedrooms, where he indeed found the two women someone said Adian had slipped away with, but another man was between them. Kaol only demanded where the general had gone. The women said they'd seen him playing dice in the cellar with some masked, high-ranking nobles, so Kaol stormed down there. And indeed, there were the masked, high-ranking nobles, They were pretending to be mere revelers, but Kaol recognized them anyway, even if he didn't call them out by name. They insisted Adian was last seen playing the fiddle in the main room. So Kaol went back upstairs. Adian was certainly not playing the fiddle, or the drum, or the lute, or the pipes. In fact, it seemed that Adian Ashriver wasn't even at his own party. A courtesan prowled up to him to sell her wares, and would have stalked away at his snarl had Kaol not offered her a silver coin for information about the general. She'd seen him leave an hour ago, on the arm of one of her rivals. Headed off to a more private location, but she didn't know where. If Adian was no longer here, then... Kaol went back to the castle. But he did hear one more bit of information. The bane would arrive soon, people said. And when the legion descended on the city, they planned to show Rifthold a whole new level of debauchery. All of Kaol's guards were invited, apparently. It was the last thing he wanted or needed. An entire legion of lethal warriors wreaking havoc on Rifthold and distracting his men. If that happened, the king might look too closely at Kaol. Or ask where he sometimes disappeared to. So he needed to have more than just words with Adian. He needed to find something to use against him so Adian would agree not to throw these parties and swear to keep his bane under control. Tomorrow night, he'd go to whatever party Adian threw and see what leverage he could find. Chapter 11 Freezing and aching from shivering all night. Selena awoke before dawn in her miserable little room, and found an ivory tin sitting outside the door. It was filled with a salve that smelled of mint and rosemary, and beneath it was a note written in tight, concise letters. You deserved it. Maeve sends her wishes for a speedy recovery. Snorting at the lecture Rowan must have received, and how it must have ruffled his feathers to bring her the gift... Selena smeared the salve onto her still-swollen lip. A glance in the speckled shard of mirror above the dresser revealed that she had seen better days, and was never drinking wine or eating tegya again, or going more than a day without a bath. Apparently Rowan agreed, because he'd also left a few pitchers of water, some soap, and a new set of clothes. White underthings, a loose shirt, and a pale gray surcoat and cloak similar to what he had worn the day before. Though simple, the fabric was thick and of good quality. Selena washed as best she could, shaking with the cold leaking in from the misty forest beyond. Suddenly homesick for the giant bathing pool at the palace, she quickly dried and slid into the clothes, thankful for the layers. Her teeth wouldn't stop chattering. Hadn't stopped chattering all night, actually. Having wet hair now didn't help, even after she'd braided it back. She stuffed her feet into the knee-high leather boots and tied the thick red sash around her waist as tightly as she could manage, without losing the ability to move. Hoping to give herself some shape, but... Selena scowled at the mirror. She'd lost weight enough so that her face looked about as hollow as she felt. Even her hair had become rather dull and limp. The salve had already taken down the swelling in her lip, but not the color. At least she was clean again, if frozen to her core, and completely overdressed for kitchen duty. Sighing, she unwrapped her sash and shrugged off the overcoat, tossing them onto the bed, gods her hands were so cold that the ring on her finger was slipping and sliding about she knew it was a mistake but she looked at it anyway the amethyst dark in the early morning light what would kaol make of all this she was here after all because of him not just here in this physical place but here inside this endless exhaustion the near constant ache in her chest It was not his fault that Nehemia had died, not when the princess had orchestrated everything. Yet he had kept information from her. He had chosen the king. Even though he'd claimed he loved her, he still loyally served that monster. Maybe she'd been a fool for letting him in, for dreaming of a world where she could ignore the fact that he was captain to the man who had shattered her life again and again the pain in her chest sharpened enough that breathing became difficult. She stood there for a moment, pushing back at it, letting it sink into the fog that smothered her soul, and then trudged out the door. The one benefit to scullery duty was that the kitchen was warm, hot even. The great brick oven and hearth were blazing, Chasing away the morning mist that slithered in from the trees beyond the bay of windows above the copper sinks. There were only two other people in the kitchen a hunched old man tending to the bubbling pots on the hearth, and a youth at the wooden table that split the kitchen in half, chopping onions and monitoring what smelled like bread. By the word, she was hungry. That bread smelled divine. And what was in those pots? Despite the absurdly early hour, the young man's merry prattling had echoed off the stones of the stairwell. But he'd fallen silent, both men stopping their work, when Rowan strode down the steps into the kitchen. The Fay Prince had been waiting for her down the hall, arms crossed, already bored. But his animal bright eyes had narrowed slightly, as if he'd been half-hoping she would oversleep and give him an excuse to punish her. As an immortal, he probably had endless patience and creativity when it came to thinking up miserable punishments. Rowan addressed the old man by the hearth, standing so still that Selena wondered if the prince had learned it or been born with it. Your new scullery maid for the morning shift. After breakfast, I have her for the rest of the day. Apparently, his lack of greeting wasn't personal. Rowan looked at her with raised brows, and she could see the words in his eyes as clearly as if he'd spoken them. You wanted to remain unidentified, so go ahead, princess. Introduce yourself with whatever name you want. At least he'd listened to her that night. Alentia, she choked out. My name is Alentia. Her gut tightened. Thank the gods Rowan didn't snort at the name. She might have eviscerated him, or tried to, at least, if he mocked the name Nehemia had given her. The old man hobbled forward, wiping his gnarled hands on a crisp white apron. His brown woolen clothes were simple and worn, a bit threadbare in places, and he seemed to have some trouble with his left knee, but his white hair was tied back neatly from his tan face. He bowed stiffly. So good of you to find us additional help, prince. He shifted his chestnut brown eyes to Selena, and gave her a no nonsense once over. Ever work in a kitchen? With all the things she had done, all the places and things and people she had seen, she had to say no. Well, I hope you're a fast learner and quick on your feet, he said. I'll do my best. Apparently, that was all Rowan needed to hear before he stalked off, his footsteps silent, every movement smooth and laced with power. Just watching him, she knew he'd held back last night when punching her. If he'd wanted to, he could have shattered her jaw. I'm Emris, the old man said he hurried over to the oven, grabbing a long, flat wooden shovel from the wall to pull a brown loaf out of the oven. Introduction over. Good. No wishy-washy nonsense or smiling or any of that. But his ears. Half-breeds. Peeking up from Emerus's white hair were the markers of his fae heritage. And this is Luca, the old man said pointing to the youth at the work table. Even though a rack of iron pots and pans hanging from the ceiling partially blocked her view of him, he gave Selena a broad smile, his mop of tawny curls sticking up this way and that. He had to be a few years younger than her, at least, and hadn't yet grown into his tall frame or broad shoulders. He didn't have properly fitting clothes, either, given how short the sleeves of his ordinary brown tunic were. You and he will be sharing a lot of the scullery work, I'm afraid. Oh, it's absolutely miserable, Luca chirped, sniffling loudly at the reek of the onions he was chopping. But you'll get used to it, though maybe not the waking up before dawn part. Emrys shot the young man a glare, and Luca amended, at least the company's good. She gave him her best attempt at a civilized nod and took in the layout again. Behind Luca, a second stone staircase spiraled up and out of sight, and the two towering cupboards on either side of it were crammed with well-worn, if not cracked, dishes and cutlery. The top half of a wooden door by the windows was wide open, a wall of trees and mist swirling beyond a small clearing of grass. Past them, the ring of megaliths towered like eternal guardians. She caught Emrys studying her hands and held them out scars and all already mangled and ruined so you won't find me weeping over broken nails mother keep me what happened but even as the old man spoke she could see him putting the pieces together see him deciphering selena's accent taking in her swollen lip and the shadows under her eyes otterlin will do that to a person lucas knife thudded on the table but selena kept her eyes on the old man give me whatever work you want any work let rowan think she was spoiled and selfish she was but she wanted sore muscles and blistered hands and to fall into bed so exhausted she wouldn't dream wouldn't think wouldn't feel much of anything emrys clicked his tongue there was enough pity in the man's eyes that for a heartbeat, Selena contemplated biting his head off. Then he said, Just finish the onions. Luca, you mind the bread. I've got to start on the casseroles. Selena took up the spot that Luca had already vacated at the end of the table, passing the giant hearth as she did so. A mammoth thing of ancient stone, carved with symbols and odd faces. Even the posts of the brazier had been fashioned into standing figures, and displayed atop the thin mantle was a set of nine iron figurines, gods and goddesses. Selena quickly looked away from the two females in the center, one crowned with a star and armed with a bow and quiver, the other bearing a polished bronze disc upheld between her raised hands. She could have sworn she felt them watching her breakfast was a madhouse as dawn filled the windows with golden light chaos descended on the kitchen people rushing in and out there weren't any servants just weathered people doing their chores or even helping because they felt like it great tubs of eggs and potatoes and vegetables vanished as soon as they were placed on the table whisked up the stairs and into what had to be the dining hall Jugs of water, of milk, of the gods knew what were hauled up. Selena was introduced to some of the people, but most didn't cast a look in her direction. And wasn't that a lovely change, from the usual stares and terror and whispers that had marked the past ten years of her life? She had a feeling Rowan would keep his mouth shut about her identity, if only because he seemed to hate talking to others as much as she did. In the kitchen chopping vegetables and washing pans she was absolutely gloriously nobody her dull knife was a nightmare when it came to chopping mushrooms scallions and an endless avalanche of potatoes no one except perhaps emrys with his all-seeing eyes seemed to notice her perfect slices someone merely scooped them up and tossed them in a pot then told her to cut something else then. Nothing. Everyone but her two companions vanished upstairs, and sleepy laughter, grumbling, and clinking silverware echoed down the stairwell. Famished, Selena looked longingly at the food left on the work table, just as she caught Luca staring at her. Go ahead, he said with a grin, before moving to help Emrys haul a massive iron cauldron over toward the sink. Even with the insanity of the past hour, Luca had managed to chat up almost every person who came into the kitchen, his voice and laughter floating over the clanging pots and barked orders. You'll be at those dishes for a while, and might as well eat now. Indeed, there was a tower of dishes and pots already by the sinks. The cauldron alone would take forever. So Selena plunked down at the table, served herself some eggs and potatoes, poured a cup of tea and dug in devouring was a better word for what she did holy gods it was delicious within moments she'd consumed two pieces of toast laden with eggs then started on the fried potatoes which were as absurdly good as the eggs she ditched the tea in favor of downing a glass of the richest milk she'd ever tasted not that she ever really drank milk since she'd had her pick of exotic juices in Rifthold. But. She looked up from her plate to find Emris and Luca gaping from the hearth. God's above, the old man said, moving to sit at the table. When was the last time you ate? Good food like this? A while. And if Rowan was coming back at some point, she didn't want to be swaying from hunger. She needed her strength for training, magic training, which was sure to be horrific, but she would do it, to fulfill her bargain with Maeve and honor her vow to Nehemia. Suddenly not very hungry, she set down her fork. Sorry, she said. Oh, eat all you like, Emerus said. There's nothing more satisfying to a cook than seeing someone enjoy his food. He said it with enough humor and kindness that it chafed. How would they react if they knew the things she'd done? What would they do if they knew about the blood she'd spilled? How she'd tortured Grave and taken him apart piece by piece, the way she'd gutted Archer in that sewer? The way she'd failed her friend? Failed a lot of people. They were noticeably quieter as they sat down. They didn't ask her any questions, which was perfect because she didn't really want to start a conversation. She wouldn't be here for long, anyway. Emerson and Luca kept to themselves.